New Beverly Cinema presents the Pure Cinema Podcast. Uh, I am one of your co-hosts, Brian Sauer. I also do a show called Just the Discs, all about collecting physical media. And I'm Elric Kane, the other co-host of Pure Cinema, and I also host a show called Shockwaves, which is for Fangoria and Blumhouse. And I'm a New Beverly Cinema social media manager, Phil Blankenship, and we are joined today with two very special guests. First, I'd like to introduce uh, Dan Halstead, Hollywood theater programmer from Portland, Oregon, as well as expert kung fu and martial art cinema mastermind uh, himself. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. And then uh, most importantly, we're very excited to welcome back to the podcast, Mr. Quentin Tarantino. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Dan, Quentin. I was straight from the, uh, the Hollywood theater and me talking to you straight from Tel Aviv. <laughs> The man responsible for uh, half of the universe watching Deathstalk on YouTube this last week. <laughs> so we appreciate that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm coming to you live from the land of Manak and Golem and Yoram Globus. And yeah, it's perfect. Pictures presents Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> Very nice. And I think uh, we're going to talk today about uh, the Tarantino reviews section on the new Beverly Cinema site. So Quentin has been writing about a wide variety of films, TV, uh, and other things on our site that I encourage you to check out. And uh, most recently, he posted an interview that he conducted when he was 20 with John Milius. I know that we were just talking about that before we started recording. Fantastic yeah. interview. Oh, thank you, thank you. There's still, uh, I, have a whole, um, um, I have a whole big section uh, left to uh, uh, publish where it's like, a, uh, we go in depth on Apocalypse Now. Oh, nice. Which had only been about like I think four years old or three years old around that time. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, three years earlier. And uh, so he, he goes into a, a lot of detail about that and about his relationship with Francis Ford Coppola. It's it's, uh, it's 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 really cool and it's really touching. I have a follow up question about that interview. So you conducted it when you were twenty. You yeah. uh, talked to his uh, assistant and said that you were writing a book. Um, when you reconnected with John Milius uh, after you made Reservoir Dogs, did he remember you doing that interview? Um, yeah, you know, um, yes, he did. I mean, I, I, he remembers the guy. I, he didn't remember me or what we said or, or anything like that. But uh, um, but he had a you know, he has a he had a vague memory. Not like I, it all came back to him, but he had a vague memory of uh, uh, a young man my age coming to see him and, and interviewing him in his office and then him inviting me on the set of um, Uncommon Valor. And probably what he remembered more than anything else was actually the interview. Uh, the interview was a lot of fun. I didn't really even know how to interview people. So we just talked about Williams the entire time, as you can tell. Uh, uh, you know, half the interview was me talking about William Smith. Um, <laughs> but um, I was here to interview him about directing. I don't even know enough about directing to ask him about directing. Um, and and uh, uh, one of the things I don't put in the interview, uh, it's in there a little bit, but I cut it way back, is when, you, when I listen to the tapes, it's totally embarrassing how much I talk. <laughs> I just never shut up. I'm there to interview him. But I'm just so excited to be talking to him that I just want him to think I'm a cool guy. And so I'm like, well, let me tell you about this. And let me tell you about that. I'm making all these declarative statements and I'm telling you about everything I like. And so, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I got rid of half the crap I said. Because <laughs> it's, just, it's just me trying to impress him and just like shut up. This is, 
John Melissa's interview. Yeah, eventually you get down to a question after I've like talked forever, holding court about this movie or that movie and this genre and that genre and, and my thoughts. <laughs> but then he invited me on the um, on the set of uh, Uncommon Valor, and so we did a bit of an interview. But then at some point, because it was an all night shoot, his little trailer became this like place where everyone was hanging out. And so a couple people that were working on the film were hanging out in the trailer. And then at some point, Patrick Swayze joined us. And uh, his buddy, Frank McRae, who's in a lot of his movies, was there all night. And, uh, and a couple of other people joined us. And we just talked about movies, all right, for about three hours. And from time, and different actors would join us, and then they get yanked away from the first AD to go back to do work. And... Um, yeah, and I'm, you know, uh, this is way before I worked at Video Archives, you know, and it was, it was one of those moments where it was like, oh my God, this is like the greatest day in my life uh, because I was hanging with these movie professionals and I was so far away from being able to like make a living doing any kind of uh, film work. And it just seemed, you know, I mean, it seemed like from the earth to the moon at that point in time and I just... Yeah, I, I was just a film geek, but I didn't even have film geek friends. I was literally all by myself. And um, so uh, so just being in this company of people who did this for a living, and I was, you know, for that night anyway, I was uh, accepted with them. And I was hanging with them. And they listened to what I said, and I listened to what they said. And, then, and there, you, know, you know, for that moment, that night, there was, like, no difference. And uh, like, oh, wow. You know, I did have that feeling. Well, if they could do it, I could do it. Now, it took me a long time after the, to get anything going, but 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 yeah, you know, I had these little uh, little tiny moments. And um, and the thing is, I, I didn't when I called up his assistant and said I was writing a book. I wasn't uh, I wasn't conning her. I actually intended to write a book. Uh, it was on uh, film directors. I thought I would start with the interviews and then write the write the pieces and uh, the book was called um, Cinema of the Outrageous and, and I even learned how to say it in French it was Cinema du Outrageous <laughs> and, um, and uh, I never finished it because I was 20 and I was a flake and uh, I, uh, I was uh, too young and far too flaky to write a book. Um, but I had every intention of writing the book and I started off with interviews. And so I interviewed like quite a, uh, I interviewed a few people back then. I interviewed John Mullius, I interviewed Joe Dante. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I interviewed, I interviewed Joe Dante in his office and then he invited me on the set of Gremlins. And I interviewed him on the set of Gremlin. But they had me behind a partition because I, I wasn't supposed to see what a Gremlin looked like. Hmm. And, um, and then there was this time where I, you know, they were shooting and also I had all this access to him because uh, Gremlin's head fell off. So they took him a while to fix the Gremlin head. And so, I, uh, so I'm sitting there talking to him. Then they fixed it, but then they see he's talking. So they, you know, they just let us talk for a while. So I'm really like this guy just visiting the set and like they, and I have Joe Dante where they could be shooting for probably at least 20 more, you know, 20 minutes earlier, but they're just kind of letting him talk. And at some point he goes, okay, you know what? I'm going to wrap this up. I, I kind of see that they're done and they're kind of waiting for me to come, but they don't want to say anything. So, uh, and yeah, so it, yeah, so I interviewed Joe Dante. I interviewed, um, 
uh, Richard Franklin, who, uh, oh, who I was a big oh, fan of, he did the Australian Hitchcock. I was oh, a yeah. huge fan yeah. of uh, Road Games. Great and movie. I interviewed him on this, uh, not on the set, I interviewed, uh, he had just shot the movie. I interviewed him in his office at uh, uh, Universal, after, right after he had done uh, Cloak and Psycho Day? 2. Oh, Psycho 2, cool. So I hadn't, so I hadn't seen Psycho 2 yet, but I'd seen uh, Patrick, and I had seen uh, Road Games, and I loved Road Games. And it was also cool because I had, um, I had seen Patrick, but I'd only seen the American version where they uh, uh, cut it down and dumped it uh, with American mm-hmm. accents. But he had a 16 millimeter print of the longer version with Australian accents. And so he lent me the 16 millimeter print and I had to find somebody who had a 16 millimeter projector so I could watch it. And in fact, it was, and it was, I, I don't even remember why I did this. But for whatever reason, when I met Richard Franklin, I used a different name. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, I'm sure I had a reason back then. And it was uh, Nick Jerome. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so, uh, yeah, but so I interviewed them. I interviewed uh, uh, John Flynn, the director of uh, Rolling Thunder, yeah. and then interviewed him at his house. And, and I still have those tapes, and actually it was interesting. I had the tapes for all these guys. Uh, it was interesting because he put on these Morricone stores, so when you play the tapes back, it's like score to Morricone music. <laughs> oh, wow. Nice. Um, and then there was these uh, directors who had done an exploitation movie like either one or two, but usually about one that had come out within the last two years or so that I was a fan of, that I thought were, were good. And so I wanted to meet them and talk to them about how to, uh, how to get a movie made and how they got a movie made and, and to not just talk to guys who were famous, but guys who I liked, who had just, who had just done an exploitation movie, had just mm-hmm. done something interesting. And so I interviewed uh, Nick Castle, uh, who played The Shape, in uh, Halloween, uh, because he had done a, his first film was a movie called Tag the Assassination Game with Robert Carradine and Linda Hamilton that I thought was really good. And I had interviewed uh, Alan Holzman, the uh, director of uh, 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 Forbidden, Forbidden World. World. Yeah. And he was a big editor at uh, New World Pictures. So I interviewed him. And I interviewed, uh, and I, saw, I saw him at his, uh, his, I think he was living with his mom, and I went to his mom's house. I interviewed uh, uh, Mark Rossman, who directed uh, uh, House of Sorority Row. And not only, it was a really good slasher film, not only did he direct the House of Sorority Row, he was also part of that crew of uh, students that went to Sarah Lawrence College that uh, uh, shot uh, Brian De Palma's home movies. Mm, wow, interesting. So, he told, so, he, so not only did he tell me about <laughs> making uh, House of Sorority Row, he told me the whole uh, the whole, whole story about making home movies uh, with uh, working on the crew with Brian De Palma. Who I assume would have been on your list of directors to talk to at that point, right? Well, you know, okay, well, one, he was, he was my biggest hero, all right, in, in, in the world. At that time, I had two heroes, and it was uh, uh, um, Longwood Williamson. Uh, it was uh, uh, Brian De Palma and uh, Howard Hawks. Howard Hawks was dead, so it was going to be him. Uh, except once I had a dream where I met him, um, I, it was it was a cool dream. It was like it was like Howard Hawks was having a, a party and I was invited to the party. Uh, and Robert Mitchum was there. It was pretty cool. Anyway, um, but uh, through Mark Rossman, I got to meet. I got to know on the phone anyway. Brian De Palma's assistant, and so his assistant was 
vaguely down with setting me up with an interview because he was in town. He was shooting at Universal. They were shooting Scarface. So he was in town and he was at Universal. They were shooting on the sound stages at Universal for a lot of stuff. So he was right there. And so there was talk. There was, there was negotiations. There was talk about getting me on the set of Scarface. Can you imagine getting on the set of Scarface? <laughs> there was talk about me going, being on the set of Scarface. Uh, and actually having a, you know, talking, uh, uh, watching him work for a little bit and then talking to uh, and doing an interview with him, which, you know, which I might, if that had happened, I might never have been a filmmaker because I might have just committed suicide after. Harry Carey moment. I could ever get. And it, it just ne- it never happened. It never, it never happened. But I even remember when, okay, well, it was done. It wasn't going to happen. And he was still, he was a nice guy about it. Really. He was like, well, I'm sorry, Quinn. Just we couldn't get it together. It didn't didn't happen. And I almost, almost, almost uh, uh, interviewed George Miller. Oh, wow. Yeah, because well, they were all doing. Uh, they uh, actually at that time because uh, Joe Dante had just done the Twilight Zone the movie. His assistant and George Miller's assistant were the same assistant. Mm-hmm. So it, yeah, so those are the guys I almost met. Um, so I mean. You know, for a guy who knew fuck all in the industry and had was as non-legit as you could possibly be, uh, 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 not a high school dropout, but a junior high dropout, I thought he did a pretty good job. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, if you had had a podcast back then, it would have been a hit podcast, Quentin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It sounds yeah, like that. I actually got... John Mullius to write a letter of recommendation for me as a filmmaker. Wow. Oh, that's cool. Still have that letter, actually. <laughs> so are you planning on transcribing more of these uh, over the years for the site? Yeah, eventually, eventually. Yeah, it's kind of, it was, it's, I, I just happen to have, you know, uh, I, I know exactly where the tapes are because I, I'd actually just listened to the John uh, Flynn tape recently, uh, not recently, I'm, Israel, but, but when I was at, uh, in Los Angeles, I'd listened to it recently for something I was doing uh, research on, and it's like the first time I'd heard it in a long time, and uh, uh, and so I think I, I think I probably will. I was going to just break the ice on it with uh, this Milius one, but I actually have like the transcript of the Milius one that I just did by hand uh, here, and so I'm like, oh well, this will be a good one. This will be a good one to do. I'll, I'll get started. That sounds like a great choice cut. We'll just take the choice cut audio bits you want at some point, and that's a great episode right there. <laughs> um, as we say, as we segue to this conversation, I just wanted to like set up from my perspective what, what's interesting about the conversation you guys uh, are going to have today, and, and why I'm kind of happy to shut up today, uh, which is a first on our show, um, is. <laughs> context like i think about when and i was just talking to brian before the started like if this is slasher movies i can tell you what movie was made when and what's yeah. a trend from it and but when it comes to kung fu i realize any kung fu films or martial art films i've seen in my life it's been completely random i mean maybe a little bit of context maybe with jackie chan or something more in my era that i got to see when it came out but otherwise i'm just all over the map and i think that is something as soon as i started reading the uh, the jimmy wang Yu uh review that you wrote 
I suddenly realized, oh, there's this incredible historic context and beat to beat that suddenly I, I can understand, oh, this guy's then moving to Taiwan. And there's a, there's a whole history that I was just completely unaware of. And so I, I'm really mostly curious to a, hear how you both kind of, um, to, to set this up for you both, how you guys both came to these kind of films yourself, but also how, how you know each other in that context. And then Dan, you know, I'll let you, let you take it away from there. Cool. Yeah. Um, well, my background was I grew up in a super tiny town, so I didn't have access to Kung Fu movies at all when I was growing up. So it wasn't until as soon as I got out of high school, I got the hell out of that town, <laughs> moved to Portland. And then we have a great video store here, Movie Madness, that actually the Hollywood Theater saved a couple of years ago. And I would rent all types of movies but I would always end up, it'd be like the end of the night, I would end up watching Kung Fu movies and I was kind of drawn to those movies. And I also, I've always been a projectionist my whole life. And I worked at this really just terrible one screen movie theater where I'd be the only employee there. I'd sell the tickets, <laughs> I'd sell the concessions, I'd go up and start the movie. Um, and nobody went there. But next door, there was an Asian video store. And I started renting tapes from there. And that is really how my knowledge started. And I was just really drawn to those films. I've always loved them. And then once I started film collecting, those are always the movies I really wanted to show to audiences. And I quickly found that they just weren't available. And not only that, it seemed like the film archives and a lot of collectors didn't care. People made fun of me for wanting mm -hmm. to find those movies. And so I just kind of saw it as I can try to set out and save these films or they're just going to be lost. And the weird thing is, I think because I grew up in a tiny town where I didn't have access to anything, mm -hmm. it was I always had to think outside the box to get access to anything that I liked. And I think because of that is how I've, become in a weird way someone who can find things that other people can't seem to find it's really <laughs> weird i think that's how i've been able to track down rare 35 millimeter prints and 70 millimeter 70 millimeter projector parts and all this other stuff it's really strange so anyway that's my background on it i want to point out that uh dan is one of the premier film collectors especially in the martial arts world and mm -hmm. uh he has found things that You've certainly seen on the New Beverly screen, uh, when we did our Shaw Brothers, uh, Shaw Timber a few years ago, a lot of those prints, the ones that didn't come from Quentin, came from uh, a collection that Dan saved. And there's an interesting backstory behind that, right? Right, Dan? Yeah, um, I mean, I'll tell it quickly, but um, Shaw Brothers prints were always the ones that were the hardest to find. It seemed like there were only a couple out there and it always drove me crazy because there's so many great movies that they made. Um, and there was a guy selling these Shaw Brothers trailers on eBay. And I bought a couple and they were in amazing condition and they were all in their original uh, film cans. And so I started asking him questions about it, about where he got them. And he was being a little shady about it. It was obvious that he had stolen them from somewhere. And he had the trailers and he had the posters. And so I was like, I bet the prints are around the same place where he got those. But he <laughs> wouldn't tell me what happened. He stopped answering my emails. But one of the trailers he sent me had a movie ticket inside. And it said Shaw <laughs> Theater on it. 
And so I did some research and found out that Shaw Brothers had a chain of theaters in North America in the 70s and early 80s. And I actually tracked down Run Run Shaw's niece who had run the North American theater chain and she wasn't involved in the company anymore, but she put me in touch with Run Run's office and they mailed me a key and it was their, the last building they owned. They had sold off all their theaters and the only one left was in Vancouver, BC. And so all the prints had played the circuit and then they had ended up in that theater and just stayed there. So it had been closed since 1985. And then I got in and tore a panel off the stage at the front of the theater and there was over a thousand reels of film underneath the stage. Oh man. Which was- Is that where you, is that where you got your Five Element Ninja? Yep. That's where I got Five Element Ninjas, 36 Chamber Shaolin, Eight Diagram Pole Fighter. That's where your Avenging Eagle print came from. Yes. Um, <laughs> My yeah. prize Right. Um, so yeah, it was incredible. And then, you know, there was a whole, that theater was on Hastings Street in Vancouver, BC, which I uh, saw a show on Discovery Channel later that showed a footage of that theater that said that's the highest concentrated use of heroin in North America. <laughs> and it was literally me dealing with the heroin addicts the whole time. Every time I brought out a pallet full of prints, I had to have a push broom to um, sweep the needles out of the way so I could get another pallet of prints onto the truck. <laughs> incredible. Wow. So yeah, that was that story. And then getting the film across the border, um, we ran into a problem because I had to give them all, I had to give customs a list of prints and the <laughs> film Dirty Ho, they flagged it <laughs> <in> porn, <laughs> which Dirty Ho is a lighthearted Kung Fu comedy. And yeah. so I had to explain that to the guys at customs. What was the <laughs> condition of the films if they've been there for that long? Most of them were in amazing condition. They obviously hadn't played that much. Some of them are faded due to film stock that fades. But for the most part, they obviously didn't play much. And I think it was a weird situation where Vancouver doesn't have humidity and the film was stored open. It was like a perfect film storage in a weird way. And those were the only ones left. I talked to Run Run Shaw's office and he said, or his assistant that I was talking to said that Mona Fong, who is the head of production at Shaw Brothers, had gone to each theater as they closed them down and destroyed the prints that were left behind. He even called it the Mona Fong destruction tour. <laughs> well, I've shown that uh, Five Element Ninja, uh, one, not only have we shown it like a few times, uh, like more than three at least, um, at the new bab, but I've uh, showed it at my house a couple of times and we even showed it uh, um, when we were, um, I think we had it sent up to uh, Louisiana when we were doing uh, uh, Django. And we had it, we showed it for uh, the crew. Uh, we showed it for the crew, we watched it for the, for the crew, but especially Sam Jackson, who hadn't seen it on film in, in, in a long, long time. And uh, the, the, that one of the great endings to me of not just any, of not just a Shaw Brothers movie, but of any movie ever made, <laughs> is the ending of Five Element Ninja when the guy is just ripped apart. Yeah. In that. And then boom, the freeze frame happens. And then like when the lights come out, uh, Sam then goes, well, just as good as I remember. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, so what about Quentin? What about your background of how you got into these movies? How you fell in love with Kung Fu movies? Well, it's funny because um, I think I'm a little older than you. So um, I was a, a little boy when the whole Kung Fu craze kind of started happening. 
first with uh, uh, the David Carradine TV show, and then, um, and I remember going to the movies and seeing the trailer for Five Fingers of Death. The new movie sensation that's stunning the world, the martial arts masterpiece, sights and sounds like never before. Cheer the young warrior who alone takes on the evil warlords of martial arts. See one incredible onslaught after the other. Come prepared for the thrill of a lifetime. I want you to pay a visit to the Xiangwu School of Defense. Who do you want us to kill? Just you concentrate on the leaders. The others won't give us any trouble. See mighty warriors attack each other with the most deadly weapons ever developed, their bare hands. You know, just before it was getting ready to, to come out, I go, oh wow, this is sort of like Kung Fu. Um, but then I had a very frustrating experience um, because then I was uh, shipped sort of what well, was supposed to just be the summer and then it ended up being, I'm there for a year, no one tells me. Um, that it's going to be that long a stay. The next thing I know, I'm visiting my grandmother for the summer in Tennessee, and the next thing I know, I'm like enrolling in school. Um, when I think I'm going back home, that was like the end of 72, beginning of, uh, uh, through the whole first, uh, all through the, uh, seven, uh, all through 73, but which is the Kung Fu craze time in America. That was when, it's almost amazing to think, but it was like, like there was about like four kung fu movies released every week. I mean, everything was getting was getting released. And after like going to the movies all the time in Los Angeles, in Tennessee, uh, there was no theaters around. And I had hillbilly grandparents. They, they didn't go to a diner because that was too high class for them. They were, you know, that was too weird to like to go to a movie. That's just what kind of fancy person are you that you think you just go to movies? Uh, um, but there was actually one drive-in that was uh, in the in the town. Now they didn't show kung fu movies. Um, the only movies that they showed were uh, the only like new movies that they showed was like country-oriented stuff, and they didn't show that many of that much of that. But like they did show White Lightning, and then uh, and they showed they showed Walking Tall because Walking Tall was made in Tennessee, and that was a big deal. I remember mean, Walking Tall you know, played at the drive-in in the town. I mean, it was like the Godfather. I don't know. It, uh, literally, it was as big of a thing in, in Tennessee, walking tall playing as the Godfather was the year before in, in Los Angeles. This year, it's possible that more people will see Walking Tall than any other movie. Oh, there it is again. What? System. If you live my way, you don't live. Sooner or later, someone you know will tell you to see it unless you tell them first. Walking Tall, rated R. And uh, I went to the Friday night show. Oh, by the way, because no one's taking me to this drive-in. It is me and my other friend. We're both, we're, I'm in fifth grade at this time. It's me and my friends walking to the drive-in. And then we go to the drive-in and sit on the gravel with a, a speaker and watch the movie without a car. Um, and so we see the film, Walking Tall, and then the big scene happens with Buford Pusser and the, uh, the baseball bat, and he, and he fucks up everybody. That was amazing. Okay, so from that point on, it was like maybe uh, mid-July 
that they got Walking Tall. So before that, it was like movies would change every week. For the rest of the summer, they just played Walking Tall, which I was even kind of okay with because Walking Tall was that good. However, they cut the baseball scene out after the first night. Oh. It was like either I, either somebody stole it because they wanted it for themselves or somebody had complained about the violence. And so they cut it out. And I didn't realize they cut it out. I would just, I would just watch it. And then like the, the, the scene is supposed to happen that I remember happening because I was there opening night. And then all of a sudden it just cuts to him standing over everybody lying dead. I'm like, I, I didn't know people could cut things out of movies that way. So I mean, I thought, was I crazy? Did I think... Thank God I saw it with other people. I was like, what? you remember when he beat up everybody? Yeah, yeah, I remember what happened. Um, so they showed those movies, and then, yeah, and then they closed in uh, uh, wintertime because it was just too cold. But uh, the only other thing, it, but the rest of the stuff it showed was like older movies. You know, older movies of the Exchange House just gave them. Like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they would get bed knobs and broomsticks, and they would show that. Or uh, Evil Knievel. And, and they showed a lot of biker films. And, and frankly, that's how I got to know who William Smith was, was because they, because uh, it's 73, but they're still showing Chrome and Hot Leather. And they're still showing uh, uh, Angels Die Hard and these different William Smith movies. I'm like, who's this, uh, who's this buff dude? Um, and, uh, uh, and, we, and then we got the exploitation stuff that would come into town for, for a week. So uh, we got like a, a Hot Summer in Barefoot County when that came in. We got uh, Hallmark releasings, re-release. Uh, we got Hallmark releasings. Um, uh, Don't go in the basement with Last House on the Left. Mm. Uh, uh, New World Pictures release of um, uh, The Beast of Yellow Night with Creature with a Blue Hand. So I actually saw my first uh, uh, Edgar Wallace Kremen <laughs> with uh, uh, in Tennessee. But so all this is going on. Just this one little theater showing this movie. However. I mean, so the town is called South Clinton. In Knoxville, which is like the big town, which going to Knoxville from South Clinton is like going to New York City. And, and, yeah, and no one's taking me to Knoxville. Oak Ridge was as closest to a bigger city as uh, I was going to get taken to. But Knoxville had theaters. And they were showing the Kung Fu movies. So I can't see any of this stuff. But what I can do, and by the way, oh, and not only that, they're kung fu movies. So naturally, like they did with exploitation movies, they are flooding the local stations with the TV spots. So you just see the TV spots all the time on TV, and I can't see any of this stuff. But, you know, that's how they sold exploitation movies. They come into a town and just, you know, and, and buy all this cheap TV airtime, you know, uh, um, during the wrestling and, and playing, uh hee-haw and, and, and just, you know, whatever uh, uh, reruns of stuff that they were, you know, shown during the day. And so I can't see any of this stuff. But what I can do, because you know, we were so, hillbilly, we didn't, like, subscribe to the newspaper. What's that? Okay, now we didn't do that. All right. Um, so I would go to the library in the elementary school, and the library had the newspaper of the day. And during my lunch time, uh, every time they changed the newspaper, I would go to the library and take my lunch with me, and I would get the newspaper, the Knoxville News Sentinel, and I would open up the movie page, and I would see all the ads for the different kung fu movies that were playing that I would never see, and I can't see, but they're there. Other people are seeing, and they're there. And so to this day, 
I have a really good knowledge of what martial art movies in America got American theatrical releases. And I'm not just saying the Exchange House had some junky kung fu prints that they just sent over to be shown as a second or a third, uh, uh, um, third feature at a grindhouse, or just you know uh, Bruce Lee versus the Brown Bomber, which God knows what that is. It's just they threw a, a, a shit title on it. Um, but movies that actually that were actually released by a distribution company, not just you know, not just a print that the Exchange House had, uh, backed by uh, 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 genuine movie posters, not those like Xeroxy things, but backed by genuine movie posters and backed by newspaper ads and sometimes even TV spots. So I'm very, because I, 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 like I memorized all of them, I, I saw them all. And, um, you know, so like for instance, um, I remember very clearly uh, Wang Yu's film, The One on Boxer, being released by National General Pictures as the Chinese professionals. And I remember very clearly the, uh, the TV spot. I remember very clearly the newspaper ad. Combine the Dirty Dozen with the Magnificent Seven and you have the Chinese professionals. Kung Fu Beast. Siamese Devils. Tibetan Tiger Man. The Invincible Yuga Khan. The One-Armed Boxer. A total of nine masters of the martial arts to tear the screen apart. The Chinese Professionals. Rated R. And, uh, and, and not only that, the Chinese Professionals, was the, the biggest theater in, in Knoxville was a theater called the Tennessee. That was like their drama's Chinese. And, um, and the Tennessee is still there. I actually went to Knoxville about uh, seven years ago uh, for the first time in a long time. And the Tennessee is still there. It's not a movie theater. It's like a concert venue. Kenny Rogers was alive. If he went into Knoxville, he would play at the Tennessee. Um, but back in 73, you could see the Chinese professionals at uh, uh, the Tennessee, which I can only imagine how great that would have been. Um, but a lot of the, you know, but, uh, but that's actually, even, yeah, before even they started calling uh, Wang Yu, Jimmy Wang Yu, it was like um, 10 Steel Fingers, that film that, uh, that he did. Uh, I remember it under the title, The Hong Kong Cat. <laughs> when it played in Tennessee, it was called The Hong Kong Cat. Um, but, uh, um, Whatchamacallit, a um, uh, 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 new one-armed swordsman was called Triple Irons. It smashes. It rips you apart. Triple Irons, the deadliest weapon of the martial arts, mastered by a torturous tyrant who defies every challenge. I remember that, and then... Uh, uh, Lightning Swords of Death, which is the uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, Lone Wolf and Cub you know, movies. But I remember, I remember, I remember the trailer. I remember very specifically, very, very, very specifically, the TV spot that they showed on TV a lot for uh, Wang Yu's Blood of the Dragon. You know, absolutely the most violent fight scene ever in the history of cinema. <laughs> Michael Rivas presents Blood of the Dragon. Um, so the thing about it was, 
So I can't see any of this stuff. And so I'm literally there. And when I say literally, I mean, I'm using literally in the correct pronunciation. So like a lot of kids who would be into whatever subgenre that they're into and that, that they just can't see it. Normally it's because their parents won't let them. I just have no access to it. So it's all going on without me. And I'm just loving it from afar. And so I miss this entire 73 time. But I mean, not only do I miss the Kung Fu movies, there was much stuff as I saw in the 70s. 73 is my black hole. You know, I, that was the time that I didn't see any of the stuff that came out. When it came, I, if I saw it, I saw it much later. I didn't see The Exorcist when it came out. I didn't see Serpico when it came out. I didn't see Paper Moon when it came out. I mean, anything that fell in 1973 was just totally a black hole. I, I didn't see Blazing Saddles when it came out. I didn't see Young, well, I saw Young Frankenstein when it came out because I'd gotten back home by the time. So all those, I, I didn't see Serpico until actually a few years ago because I, I, it was, I, I missed it. But um, all those big movies, I had to actually see during their re-release. You know, so I saw the re-release of uh, Blazing Saddles. I saw the re-release of The Exorcist. I saw uh, I saw Paper Moon re-release when they released it as a double feature with uh, a technical double feature with uh, the Bad News Bears. So uh, yeah, so that that's always been my dark hole. So anyway, by the time I get back to California to you know, uh, civilization, um, and now I'm not watching Hee Haw anymore. I'm back to watching Soul Train. Um, by the time I get back, the craze is over. Now, it's not completely done, but that, that glut of movies is over and that like every new week there's like two new movies coming out. That, that is done. Uh, Bruce Lee's dead, all the Bruce Lee movies have played. And, um, and my mom had actually seen a couple of them because like everybody, like at one point, almost like a porno film, they all went and saw like one or two, you know, just and so I just can't wait to see any of them. And so the first official Kung Fu movie that I see at the movie theater is a Bruce Lee movie. And it's uh, Bruce Lee Super Dragon, one of his four uh, uh, Bruce Lee uh, wannabe biographies. Um, and not probably the worst one, too. Um, and I see it on a double feature with uh, White Line Fever. But I'm just so excited that I'm finally seeing a Kung Fu movie. And by the way, speaking of Ten Fingers of Steel, if you've ever seen Bruce Lee's Super Dragon, the entire, that entire 15-minute fight that happens in Wang Yu's ten, minutes, uh, ten Fingers of Steel on the train, that's all in uh, uh, Bruce Lee's Super Dragon. They have a scene in Bruce Lee's Super Dragon where like, you see, well, Bruce Lee is directing a movie now. And he's like, okay, and action! And then it just cuts to the entire fight of Ten Fingers of Steel. And I didn't even know who you was at that time. Um, it was like, what the hell is this? It was just filler. Um, so Bruce Lee's Super Dragon, I see that. And um, but then I, I, uh, after a little bit, I start discovering, maybe about like a year or so later, uh, I lived in the South Bay area. So I lived like in Torrance, Harbor City area, California. Uh, Right on the other side of the tracks was a city called Carson, and that was uh, uh, a more urban area. It had uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of black folks, a lot of uh, uh, Mexicans, a lot of uh, Samoans, and a lot of poor white folks. And then there was this uh, theater there called the Carson Twin Cinema, 
That, and that place was my grindhouse. That was the grindhouse, where it showed all the exploitation movies that came out, and it showed all you know the mainstream movies like on their way out of town after they had been playing for four months or five months or something. They would you know the last stop would be the Carson Twin Cinema. So like you know um, you know after Barbara Streisand's Stars Born had been playing for eight months on its way out of town, it would play at the Carson Twin Cinema. Um, but the thing about it is they knew their audience. So, uh, so they definitely got all the exploitation movies that were coming out you know, this week only. I saw the Dario Argento movies there. I saw the Jallos there. I saw you know, uh, all the wonderful, weird exploitation movies that I grew up seeing that wouldn't have played in any of the malls or the United Artists theater chain or something, you know, stuff like uh, you know, uh, you know uh, The Girl from Starship Venus or something like that. I saw it nationally at the Carson Twin Cinema. Uh, deep Red, I saw the Carson Twin Cinema. Um, but they also did really great business with um, old kung fu films and old black exploitation movies. So they would, you know, even though it was, even though they were years old, they would show Coffee, and they would show The Mac, and they would show JD's Revenge, and they would show uh, uh, Foxy Brown, and, the, and, and they would show uh, Deep Thrust and uh, Lady Kung Fu, and, and they would show all the Bruce Lyman movies, every single Bruce Lyman movie. And, um, and when the films did well, they brought them back. So, you know, they showed, they showed Exit the Dragon, Enter the Tiger, maybe like on, on four different engagements. And I saw it every single time. You know, they showed Soul Brothers of Kung Fu, you know, four different times. And I saw it four different times. Um, and, and in fact, and one of the things was, uh, one of the things that they did, they knew it did so well there, is every year, twice a year, twice a year, they would have a double feature of End of the Dragon and Five Fingers to Death. And like every time, it was like on the weekend, it was just sold out. It was just, you know, all during the day, it was jam-packed. At night, it was, it was jam-packed. And um, as I was like, uh, uh, as I mentioned in the, um, in the uh, review I wrote for um, I Escape from Devil's Island, where I talk about being in a, a black theater when I'm 10 years old watching Jim Brown in Black Gun, but a formative experience, cinematic experience that was for me. Right up there was watching that double feature of Enter the Dragon and uh, Five Fingers of Death twice a year for about three years. Because the way you watched is you went and saw Enter the Dragon first. Then you stayed for Five Fingers of Death. And, you know, it's a pretty good double feature. And it was like jam-packed audience filled with a ton of crips and lowriders. And after watching this, you know, three and a half hours of, of martial arts, when it built up to the tournament at the end of Five Fingers of Death, and Lo Lee is like, you know, running to get to the tournament and everything, everyone's like really into it. And fights are going on and stuff. But that part at the end, when all of a sudden his fist glows red, and you know he's going to use the iron fist, and they start playing the Ironside theme. They start playing Quincy Jones's theme. And you see it, and he, and he shows to the audience that the fist is glowing red. The audience lost their mind. <laughs> and, you know, and it wasn't, uh, and, it, and I've had audiences at the New Beverly Loser Mind when we show that film at that moment. But with those audiences in that environment, and, and, and coming at the end of, a, you know, three hours, over three hours of martial art mayhem, 
and building up to that release. It was, you know, it, it was one of the greatest, you know, cause and effect I'd ever seen of, of, of a genre cinema, of action cinema. Just, you know, literally, you know, an orgasmic feeling uh, in a, a, a connection between of not just you, but the crowd around you, everyone re responding and insane. And, you know, other than uproarious comedies, you never had that relationship with an audience. You wouldn't in an uproarious comedy, but you wouldn't in uh, uh, an action movie in normal theaters. But in this theater, you did. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I'm always so jealous of those stories to hear people like I had Riza came to town last year and telling me stories about going to 42nd Street. And he said he would go and sometimes it would be two pornos and a kung fu movie. And that'd be, yeah. <laughs> but I'm always so jealous of that. But yeah, the audience reaction is such a great point. And that's why I always wanted to save these movies is because they need to be seen with an audience. It's oh, such yeah. a different experience than watching them at home by yourself. Well, one of the things that, you know, where I, when I started getting my Kung Fu films before I owned the New Beverly, I used to go to, uh, uh, Austin and I uh, and uh, and uh, have my little uh, uh, QT fest in Austin, like about, you know every year and a half or two years or so, and then we would have Kung Fu night. And finally, I started like you know, getting some. You know, I think the first Kung Fu night, I was just happy to show any Kung Fu movies. But finally, I got a, a few good ones, and so I could show you know Snake and Monkey Shadow, and I could show you know, along with Jake Claw. Those are amazing movies. I mean, they they're those are audience favorites. And then, you know, uh, uh, when I finally got a, a, a print of a, um, a Snake and Eagle Shadow, I was like, oh my God, this is great. And, um, and to actually show that, or to show a, a Fistful of Talons, um, or, uh, um, and, you know, the really audience films, that was like the first time since that time that I, was, that I could actually still see the audience responding the way that I remember. And they were a little cooler. They, I mean, they, they, they really got into it, but I, I would always make it, hey, don't. Don't get your little laughing at the dubbing out right away. You can you can titter you can titter about it for like the first five minutes, but then I want you to knock it off. And I want you to laugh at all that crap. You're not too cool for the movie. I'll we'll bounce you. We'll kick you out. Um, we want you to take these movies as they are, and and then it worked. I trained the audience pretty good. And um, and then when you, you got to the end with a big snake fight at the uh, snake fist fight at the end of. Uh, a snake and monkey shadow. Introducing a new exponent of the martial arts, John Chang. Since he was 10 years old, John Chang has been learning the art of Kung Fu and is experienced in many styles. Now John Chang bursts onto the screen in Snake in the Monkey's Shadow. Snake in the Monkey's Shadow is the story of a boy who wants to learn the drunken style of Kung Fu, but has to persuade an old master to teach him. He learns fast, but not fast enough to help the old master beat the double snakes. To avenge the death of the old master, he learns the monkey style and combines monkey with drunken to become a formidable opponent for the double snakes in the final showdown of Snake in the Monkey's Shadow. Or uh, the final uh, fight with Billy Chong in uh, uh, Jay Claude. Definitely. Uh, uh, Jackie Chan's fight with Hung Jung Lee in, in, in Snake and Eagle Shadow, and or uh, when the the woman rips the eagle in half in Fistful of Talons, which brings the house down. Um, you know, the audience 
you know, and again, and it was also like that Enter the Dragon, My Fingers of Death double feature as well, because it would be a really good double feature if you had a great kill moment for the last film on the bill. After watching the whole thing, it really did build up just the way it did with the Carson Twin Cinema. And so when that moment happened, it was like, you know, it, it was an explosion in the theater, just an explosion. And, uh, and it's like, yes, these movies still work. They work with an audience and, then, and they accepted them. And, and, and maybe they, they might have been laughing a little bit in the first five minutes, but, but then they, they, they met the movies on their own terms. Yeah. Yeah, I do a monthly Kung Fu theater series that packs the house. It's always amazing to me. It does 400 people, second Tuesday of every month. And one time I heard this woman in the lobby, uh, she was at the Hollywood to watch something else. And she said, yeah, I used to come to the Kung Fu movies, but everybody takes them seriously. So I <laughs> and I was like, I'm so glad you don't go anymore. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. Good yeah. for you. Oh, boy. 400 people watching? Yeah. Uh, Every month. It's insane. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah, are it's you, so fun. Are you, let me ask you, are, you, are, are there... Uh, um, what are some of your hits? What are some of the ones that, like, that you know, time in, time out, that when, when you show it, you're gonna, you're, you're gonna get a great reaction. You're the, this is gonna bring the house down. You, you yeah. can guarantee that that, that that death blow freeze frame is gonna, you know. The big, the always guaranteed crowd pleasers. Of course, eight diagram pole fighter. That final reel just tears the roof off. Uh, Mystery of chess boxing. Final reel of that is guaranteed destroys um seven grandmasters always kills every single time invincible armor <clears throat> um, and snake and eagle shadow of course oh yeah, yeah like the cat fighting the snake scene oh yeah uh -huh. it goes bonkers during that scene um and i've shown i've shown a couple of yours snake and monkey shadow killed and yeah fistful of talons that final freeze frame <laughs> it's kind of just shock and awe as well as people going crazy, it's a weird reaction. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's you know, shock and awe is a good way to uh, <laughs> a good way to say it. And, you know, and by the way, that print is like Ivy Technicolor, so you're like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, it is. But I, I'm one of the ones that I, I, I feel that would actually have also that effect at the end because it's just I think again, it's one of the most entertaining movies ever. And one of the great martial art directors. Uh, I've, I've written a whole piece about it, but I've, I've, I've touched on it a little bit in one of my reviews, but uh, I've got a, more, a bigger piece about it that I, I'm going to publish at some point on the site, is uh, Lee Sao Nan, mm -hmm. the yeah. Taiwan filmmaker, who's, who's a, uh, his nickname was The Master Blaster. Yep. And, uh, and I think his, be his best movie is The Hot and Cool and the Vicious. Cross Distributors presents... The Hop, a ferocious southern monster. The Cruel, a thunder-kicked northern fighter. And the Vicious, an evil, savage killer. All in The Hop, The Cruel, and The Vicious. Yeah. And that final fight in Hot, Cool, and Vicious when they fight uh, uh, Tommy Lee is just—it's just amazing. It's—it's yeah. it's as fun as it's as fun as cinema gets. Yeah, and that movie for a genre that's known for strange villains. 
Tommy Lee wins the award for strangest fucking villain in the history of Kung Fu movies in that movie. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but he's albino and he has mm-hmm. blonde hair and he walks with a limp and he has this echoing voice. It's incredible. He's got a humpback. And a humpback. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. well, it's like funny because it's like, uh, um, yeah, I, I talk about it because uh, uh, Lee Sanam directed uh, uh, Fatal Needles, Fatal Fist. And in my review, I talk about how uh, uh, Shang Yi is the uh, uh, Lee Van Cleef of the martial art world. But also, but I also think Hong Jung Lee is, is also the Lee Van Cleef of the martial art genre. But if Shang Yi is the Lee Van Cleef of the martial art genre, then Tommy Lee is absolutely the Klaus Kinski of the martial art genre. <laughs> That's a good call. Yeah. It's the total fucking weirdo of all time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we can get into your reviews. Um, I really love the Jimmy Wang Yu review. I think it's mm-hmm. a great place to kind of kick off going through these because um, it goes through Hong Kong cinema history at the same time, kind of following his yeah. career. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the beginning of it, you know, you're talking about one-armed swordsman, of course, which yeah. is like the beginning of the Shaw Brothers era. Yeah. And how before Bruce Lee, Jimmy Wang Yu was the biggest star in Hong Kong. And One-Armed Swordsman was the first big Shaw Brothers hit. And it was a seismic shift in Hong Kong cinema with that movie. It's, well, part of the thing is, you know, it's like, it wasn't the first Shaw Brothers hit. It was the, their first hit with a fight movie. Right. It, was, it shifted Shaw Brothers from making movies from, for women, which they continued doing movies geared towards uh, 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 towards females in the house and for uh, romantic melodramas and soap opery and kind of pageanty kind of uh, melodramas to more m- a masculine style of fight film that was closer to the Japanese style of, of fight film up until that point in time. Uh, they had done fight films before, but they weren't as violent uh, and there was more of a peaking opera dance quality to them. There was, I, I'm spacing on his name right now, but there was the old guy who used to play Fon San Yuk, all right, and he did, it for, he did it for like 30 years. And so yeah. he would do stuff. But, um, but uh, Hong Kong didn't have a masculine, handsome, leading man the way Japan did. There was, there was, there was not a, there was not a, a, a Hong Kong Terashima Fumi. There was not a Hong Kong Takakura Ken. Um, and when you became that, and it was like the first time that, uh, uh, you know, that, a, a, you know, a genuine masculine uh, leading man, uh, you know, a movie aimed towards men had, uh, that hit in Hong Kong and hit big. And then they kind of had their own style of, uh, of, of, of movie star. And he became the, uh, 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 it put him and uh, uh, Shang-Chi on the map. Shang-Chi became known as the million dollar director after that. And then and they did a whole uh, they did a, a whole series of movies. And just one little topic, one little mention about Shang-Chi in this is Shang-Chi is sort of the when it, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to um, martial art movies, and especially Shaw Brothers martial art movies, um, he's both Shaw Brothers, John Ford, and their Sergio Leone. And um, uh, one-armed swordsman, you know. For all intents and purposes, serves the same function as Fistful of Dollars did. It, it it created this it created a subgenre that became 
a genre that took over the entire Hong Kong film industry. Right. And, uh, you know, every wushu movie, every martial arts fight film that came in after that is, you know, it, it's a, you know, it's a descendant of, uh, uh, even though there are, you know, as, as always, there's always some president someplace else. But every other film that came out, this entire genre that we see to this day in Hong Kong, to some degree or another, it's a descendant of, uh, of one-armed swordsman. Right. Yeah. And I think for people who don't know Shaw Brothers movies, I think it's important to know how many movies they made and how that place was a factory. And Cheng Chen made around 100 movies in his career. And in the yeah. late 60s and throughout the 70s and early 80s, he was making four, five, six movies a year. Yeah. Incredible. Um, so anyway, so but the swordplay films that they made together, um, also, they made Return of One-Armed Swordsman and The Assassin. They had a string of hits. But Jimmy Wang Yu kind of got fed up of being at Shaw Brothers. So he left the studio to go out. <laughs> right before he left the studio, he yeah. made his first masterpiece that he directed, which you talk about in your review. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. Yes. Um, and it also was a seismic shift for Hong Kong because it was the first Shaw Brothers hand-to-hand -hand kung fu movie, and that's yes. Chinese Boxer. Chinese Boxer is one of, the, if you ask me, it's one of the greatest movies ever made. It yeah. is, uh, it's a great, great movie. It's uh, Wang Yu's first film as a director. You know, and the thing about it was, and you and and that is part of that, that is part of it is up until that time, you know, these fight films were happening, but it was all it still had a, a, a wushu sword base to it. And he was the first one to uh, uh, ditch the sword, and he turns his hands into uh, 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 the Iron Fist thing of uh, uh, like basically burning them off practically. And then he ends up having you know, the, the classic, one of the things that would happen in, in, in martial art films and kung fu films is the classic fight that will happen where either the hero goes to the, the bad guy's dojo or goes to uh, a, a, the restaurant the, the bird cage where you're carrying the restaurant that the bad guys hang out at or the nightclub or the casino that the bad guys run. And it uh, sounds like I'm describing Walking Tall, right? Uh, uh, and uh, that will become a staple in, uh, in martial art films from that day to this day. But the first and I think arguably the best one ever done is the one that Wang Yu does in uh, uh, Chinese boxing. And it's amazing. I got a, uh, I have an interesting story about that is when I was, um, when I was in Australia dealing with uh, uh, Ewan Wu-Pain. We were walking through the fight scenes of uh, Kill Bill because he was doing the Matrix sequels. And on his days off, he would get, uh, he would get together and I would walk him through the fights, what I wanted. I had them all written down. And then we would walk, walk him through and he would, well, how about this? How about that? And I'd go, well, how about this? And we would talk through. But then I would show him classic fights, like on like video cassettes, and I would bring the video cassettes with me, and I would show him classic fights that I really liked. 
not like, hey, let's rip this off, but, but I, want you to sh I want to show you what I was inspired by. I want you to see it from my, my eyes. You know, he did a bunch of stuff. I wanted to see where I was coming from. So I'm showing them different ones. And so naturally, I show them the big casino fight in Chinese boxing. And then there's that moment before they fight where they all circled around Wang Yu. And the camera's just kind of panning in the circle, and you, you're seeing everybody. There's a guy swinging the chain. And so uh, you and Wu Peng is watching the film. Wu Peng's watching it. And all of a sudden, Wu Peng goes, oh, oh. I go, what? He goes, that's my dad. <laughs> <laughs> Oh wow! His dad was one of the was one of the stunt guys. <laughs> hey, that's my dad. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that scene is so incredible. But then that's not even the end because then it's not it the throws, end. You still have to fight in the snow. Yeah, throws the, the doors the snow open. Hasn't happened yet either. Yeah, it's like that Sergio Leone type showdown out in the snow with those samurai. It's such an awesome scene, and then still the showdown with uh, Lo Lee as well. Yeah, you still get, yeah, you got Lo Lee, who, I mean, to me, Lo Lee is, um, you know, uh, if we're talking about, okay, Tommy Lee is the Klaus Kinski of, uh, of martial arts, and martial arts cinema, and, and Shang Yi is the Lee Van Cleef. Personally, I think Lo Lee is the greatest actor in the genre. So to me, as an actor, he's the Orson Welles. Yeah. And you could even throw in a couple of movies he directed, because he directed some classics, too, uh, uh, Fist of White Lotus. Mm -hmm. um, but, but not about the directing, even though he did a great job with that, but just all the different characters he played. And, I mean, he's like a Shakespearean actor. You know, the way we, you know, this wig turns him into this, and this mustache turns him into this. And then all of a sudden he takes all that stuff up, and he can be, like, the hero, and he's, like, the sweet guy. Uh, or, or he's the, the henpecked husband, or, uh, uh, you know, or he's the evil tyrant, or he's the Manchurian guy, or he's the Japanese dude. I mean, it's, it, it's, I think it's one of the greatest rogues gallery of villains in, in cinema history. Now, I'm throwing that term around a lot in cinema history and cinema history, but I mean, I actually truly believe this. And, and you have the, the multiple titles to back it up to some degree. I mean, yeah. if you try to even, uh, reduce it to Western audiences, and yeah, there was a whole kind. There was a there was a whole lot of uh, uh, actors, George Bancroft or whoever, who worked at Republic Pictures that played the bad guys all the time. But the characterizations didn't change the way they changed with Lowly. The looks didn't change. The characters didn't change. The uh, the crazy prowess that they had didn't change. I mean, literally, it, it, it's. You know, it's like the entire catalog of Shakespearean villains he played, you know, and then add about 70 more. Yeah, I totally agree. He's my favorite Hong Kong actor as well. And he always just seemed to really relish being the villain. He's just so yeah. amazing. But, 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 but what you bring, but bringing up uh, uh, Wang Yu and a Chinese boxer, one of the things that I mentioned in the review that I mentioned here is one of the things that I think that makes Wang Yu, and again, you know, and, you know, there was an important part of that piece that I wrote because people do not talk about his directing. Right. You know, that piece isn't a, oh, hey, check out these movies. This is a, a neat thing for you to do. No, it's a serious attempt to do an appraisal of his directorial career. Yeah. Uh, a career appreciation. Um, but the thing is, though, is uh, why I think he's one of the greatest of all the martial art directors is, uh, I mean, you could name quite a few wonderful directors uh, that you played alongside of him. However, 
as a director, I do not see the commitment to visuals in their work that I see in Wang Yu's work. In that one movie alone, but then it would continue on in his other movies. There's a, a commitment to, to beauty, to uh, uh, surrealistic uh, effects, to uh, operatic effects. And I don't just mean blood. I mean, you know, it's, it's a water, snow, uh, the fight on the beach and uh, in uh, um, a beach of the war gods lit by lanterns. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean that is that's it's it's goddamn amazing. Yeah. Quentin, so sorry, Dan. Real quick, Quentin, did you? I I can't remember which review I read it in, but you, you said Wang Yu is not a martial artist. He's an act, just an actor. No, it, look, it's it's his weird Achilles heel. All right, is uh, he's he's an actor. Uh, yeah, he's not, he wasn't a martial artist. He was just an actor. He learned how to do it now, and that was held against him once Bruce Lee became uh, became popular. I mean, it's, I mean, you know, Keanu Reeves in in uh, John Wick isn't a martial artist. He's an actor who learned how to do this. Uma Thurman learned how to do this. Uh, 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 Sylvester Stallone isn't a boxer. He learned how to do, he learned how to uh, box uh, for the films. But Wang, uh, uh, so Wang Yu, Wang Yu is uh, uh, just an actor. But then it became, uh, Almost like like in rap, where at a certain point, if you didn't have a record, if you didn't if you didn't have a criminal record, you then you weren't legit. Uh, it became a thing uh, against Wang Yu because you know all of a sudden all these guys like Fu Shang and uh, uh, the Deadly Venoms came out, and you know they could do it. They 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 were actual martial artists. But nevertheless, he fought through his whole career. But I will say. As much as he did it, you would think he would have gotten a little better at it. And what I mean by that is this, is his fights are fantastic, and he's fantastic in them, but he never learned how to do a straight leg kick. How do you, how do you make 60 martial art movies for three decades and not learn how to do a straight leg kick? All his kicks are bent leg kicks. James Coburn could do a straight leg kick in the Flint movies. So I, you know, so I, I it's, it's, it, it, you, you never want him to kick in a film. You always want him to keep it above, uh, <laughs> above the belt. All right, because above the belt, he's amazing, but his kicks are always very ineffective. Um, well, I was rewatching everything this week leading up to this, but I hate to have to admit this, but I had actually never seen Beach of the War Gods until I watched oh, yeah. it the other day. No. And it absolutely blew me away. It's incredible. I'm going to be obsessed with trying to find a 35 millimeter print of that movie because I have to show it to an audience. I'm not sure if it ever played in America. That's one of the oh. ones that I think ever got a theatrical release in America. However, it did get a theatrical release in England. In England, that's the movie he's known for. Yeah. You know, and, and so it's like it was available on video for a while, but the way it's the way it's known there, that I, it really suggests that they got prints at some point and it got released. But I, I'm willing to bet that it never saw a, 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 a genuine theatrical release. I mean, it might have played it off, it might have played it at a, a Chinatown theater, right. Chinese audience, but it never got a you know uh, an American release release. But uh, to, to have a print of Beach of the Warriors, yeah. It's so phenomenal. It's an epic film packed into 95 minutes. Yeah. It's just incredible. It, tra it transcends, it actually transcends the martial art film genre. 
Because yeah. it, at a certain point, it becomes just a historical battle movie. I mean, uh, it starts off like a kung fu movie, and it feels like a kung fu movie. But by the time it's over, I mean, it's Braveheart. Right. For our country. How much will you pay me? Huh? Money? We fight for our country and for freedom. Men are dying while you ask for reward. There's no money. Yeah. It's like that 45-minute battle scene or whatever. It's oh, yeah. just amazing. Yeah. And they were fighting the Japanese in all their full armor. I mean, oh, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it's one of the great, it's one of the great battles of all time. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, I was blown away. Um, and then, of course, I'd seen One Arm Boxer and Master of the Flying Guillotine, his other two masterpieces. <laughs> um, what I love about those is Jimmy, Jimmy Wang Yu did have a really great eye as a director, but he also really understood the importance of a good villain. And One Arm yeah. Boxer, he just packs the movie with amazing villains. It's so good, yeah. that weird group of guys. It's like the Legion oh, of yeah, Doom or something. Yeah, right. no, I'm making a point about the, yeah, in, in the review, I, I, I said that it's like, it's, it, he packs it with like a year long worth of Asian themed Fantastic Four foes, right? All show up for like one movie. Right. And the Fantastic Four could fight all those guys. <laughs> the Fantastic Four went to Hong Kong. Yeah. And One Arm Boxer is amazing, but then I just really love him one upping it with the sequel because Shaw Brothers had made the movie Flying Guillotine already. And then just the brilliant idea from Jimmy Wang Yu of combining the one-armed boxer versus the flying guillotine, which is the original title of Master of the Flying Guillotine, as just the ultimate kung fu showdown. And the movie totally delivers on that. He comes from beyond time. From beyond the outer limits of your imagination. He's the master of the flying guillotine. And he's ready to blow your mind. With more nerve-shattering special effects than you have ever seen before. It's a trip into a world where warriors from the ends of the universe meet in combat that knows no boundaries. A world where silent soldiers of death try everything in their power to conquer the most gruesome weapon ever conceived. See special visual effects filmed entirely in Super Cinevision as the master of the flying guillotine encounters the most amazing creatures in this or any world. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's I mean, I, um, I would say that at the end of the day, I think, um, I think when everything is all said and done, okay, not, not counting, not counting since I've had my own prints and I could start and I could show things all the time. I, mean, I think by now, it's probably you know, a, a, a snake and monkey shadow is probably, or, you know, or the crappy American title we got, uh, Snake versus Dragon, Snake versus Dragon. Um, I've probably seen that theatrically more than any other any other movie because I show it all the time as far as like watching prints. But back in the day when I was actually going to theaters and seeing them, um, I think the one that I saw the most theatrical uh, and theatrical engagements uh, was uh, Master of the Flying Guillotine. 
because it, it did well and played well. And it, it just, it was just constantly in rotation at all the different grindhouses. Because uh, it was like, you know, uh, uh, and whenever I noticed that it was playing somewhere, it, it was always like playing in weird double features or real triple features with other films. So, you know, you go and, you know, we see, you know, uh, uh, The Howling and Master of the Flying Guillotine and Good Guys Don't Wear Black or uh, Roman Thunder and The Master of the Flying Guillotine and Don't Go in the House. Oh, you've got a perfect... <laughs> I like in that review too, you say that the film is like a fine vintage wine only a connoisseur can appreciate. Yeah. Which is great. And then you talk about that you wouldn't necessarily, if you're going to try to turn like Peter Bogdanovich on the Kung Fu movies, you wouldn't necessarily start with Master of the Flying Guillotine. You would, you would, you would start with Master of the Flying Guillotine. Well, what, what would you start with? That's what I was wondering. Uh, for when you, when you, um, or just, well, just in general, just in general. Um, okay, truthfully, yeah, I would start with, I would, I would, I would start with uh, um, uh, the one on Swordsman. Yeah. That has, a, that has a classical sense about it. Yeah. You know, and uh, for Peter Bogdanovich, I would start with one on Swordsman. It has a classical sense about it. And it's a very heart wrenching story. Yeah. It is. It's a heart wrenching story. And I, th- and I could, and I think I could sell him on its classic place inside of cinema and I think he could, and I think he'd be able to see that yeah he'd be able to see oh okay yeah the entire industry sprung from this film and I think he would even I think he would even see the uh, um, uh, the John Ford aspect to what uh, Shang Chi was doing yeah that's great I feel like my introductory movie to people all the time is 36 Chamber of Shaolin it's just mm-hmm. the one to really make people take the genre seriously it's like yeah, a, yeah, yeah. a perfect movie um, but also in there, in your Jimmy Wang Yu write-up, you have your list of your greatest directors of the old-school Kung Fu era. Uh, yeah. So you have Chang Che, Jimmy Wang Yu, Sun Chung, who made Avenging Eagle, and yeah. Lee Sao Nam. Um, I was surprised that there's one <laughs> not on there that I would put on there. Yeah, everyone would put it on. Everyone but me would put him on there. Lao Kar Lung? Is that who we're talking about? Lao yeah, we're talking, obviously yeah. we're talking about Lao Kar Lung. It's my hunkish, controversial move, not putting him on, on the list. Right? Yeah. That's, that's my Pauline Kael uh, uh, throwing in the face, uh, spitting, in, spitting in the face of uh, the act of the crowd. Obviously, I like his work. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, he's just not my favorite, and like, yeah. but uh, having said that, like, obviously, I like Master Killer. I love uh, Thirty Six Chambers of Shaolin, and you know, and pretty much all of the uh, uh, the stuff he did with the with Gordon. But I like some of them more than others. I don't really like his comedies that much, frankly, yeah. to tell you the truth. I find them uh, I find them tedious. Yeah, um, yeah and and you know, and it's also interesting because it's like I don't love his style of choreography that much. You know, so there is this aspect, there is a, a you know, there is a vaguely more, if you, if you look at the list of people that I name, they're far more brutal fights. Yeah, right. There's a real you, your, your list has the more brutal fights and the directors that had really great villains. That's what you yes. <laughs> that's, that's, that's That's very true. And even, and even when it comes to the, the animal style of, uh, of fighting, which I actually quite like, I lean more towards a Lee Sound Nam. I lean more towards uh, uh, Invisible Armor. I lean more towards Eagle's Claw. 
I lean more towards uh, a, a snake and eagle shadow, even though that's some chunk. Not yeah. to be confused with sun, sun chunk. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, well, since we're talking about Lee Sao Nam, we can talk about your Fatal Needles versus Fatal Fists review, mm -hmm. which is amazing. I love Lee Sao Nam so much. Um, he had an incredible filmography. My favorite movie of his is Shaolin versus Llama. Oh, um, fantastic. Yeah, but it's tough to pick because he also had Eagle's Claw, Invincible Kung Fu Legs, Hot the Cool and Vicious, and then, you know, so many more. And this movie, yeah, Fatal Needles. To me, to me, I think if I had to pick his, if I had to pick his top, I, I would go with Hot Cool and Vicious. Yeah. You know, because I think there's an aspect about Hot Cool and Vicious where it's like, um, as great as the fights are, as great as that climactic fight is. And I would say, actually, out of all those directors, the one, even more than Shang Shea, the one that you can count on the final fight being a crowd pleaser, the, the one that you could just, it's money in the bank. Even if he didn't really respond to the movie for the whole first act, he catches you around the middle. And by the end, he's going to bring home the bacon. I mean, his, his, there's nobody who makes climactic fights the way Lee Sound Nam does. Um, but to me, uh, frankly, the thing is, though, um, you know, the story of Haku and the Vicious works so emotionally. And you yeah. get so caught up in, you know, into it that it's just, you know, it, it's, it's, it's that, you know, as I've said before, that, that orgasmic pleasure of violence. You know, yeah. uh, by the time you get to the end of end of end of that movie, but one of the things, uh, but you know, also, but, but he also worked under a, a bunch of different pseudonyms. So uh, he's got a bunch of uh, uh, terrific films under under the name Jimmy Shaw. Right. You know that Jimmy Shaw is is Lisa Nam. Tolo Po, another the a bunch of films under that title. Okay, that's uh, uh, Lee Sound Nam. So also one of my other favorite Lee Sound Nam movies is he did uh, a Fist of Fury Part Two. Yeah. With uh, Bly, which is a terrific movie. Uh, I mean, literally right up there with the first movie, and again another magnificent lowly performance. Uh, at the end of the movie, and that movie actually has some of my favorite dialogue in a in a martial arts film. Um, one, Bruce Lai is amazing in that movie, and not not like as a Bruce Lee impersonator. He, frankly, I I actually think Bruce Lai is a better actor than Bruce Lee, and um, and and I think especially when you see him in uh, Fist of Fury Part Two, surrounded by the exact same cast. As just mm -hmm. period, uh, I think you see it. He's, he's a better actor, and, and um, when they have the final confrontation with uh, with Loli playing the Japanese uh, guy, as opposed to the normal you, know, you bastard, I'm going to kill you, as opposed to that uh, that normal kind of uh, antagonism, they have a very interesting discussion for a second before they fight. Uh, Loli is practicing his calligraphy. And, and he's uh, he's working on Jap on, on Chinese calligraphy, and uh, and Bruce Lai looks at it and he goes, "Oh no, this this is actually quite good. You're you're very talented at this." And Lily's, "Oh no 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 no, not really. I I'm I'm only playing around. I, I don't have a wrist for the Chinese calligraphy. No 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 no. Don't give your don't don't sell yourself short. No, you really are very talented at this. Uh, I wouldn't say it if I didn't mean it." <laughs> and it, and it's, it's it's just this you know it's just 
wonderful back and forth that they have before they go out to kill each other. <laughs> and like, and, you, and it's so rare to actually have uh, uh, any moments of, of, of grace from a Japanese character <laughs> in, a, in a Hong Kong martial art movie that is like, oh, what the hell's going on here? Uh, but it's just so classic and, 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 the, and the two actors pull it off so well. It's a, it's a wonderful moment. Yeah. Um, and back to Fatal Needles. Uh, Chang Yi, who you brought up before, obviously yeah. plays the villain in that movie. He played the villain in so many Lee Sao Nam movies. Um, my favorite performance of his, he's really good in Fatal Needles. I'm, that's one of yeah, my yeah. favorite performances of his. Uh, my favorite is uh, Eagle's Claw. Oh, no, that's his signature role. That's his, right, yeah. that's his signature role. And the best outfit where he shows up in that movie and he's wearing that funky witch hat and those yeah. boots <laughs> through the movie. So good. Well, you know, one of the things about, one of the things about Shang Yi is, um, you know, a bit like uh, Loli, but, but different. Um, he really covered the gambit. He was a he was a genuine star, and so so he could star he could star in martial art movies and, and, and be the hero, and and he was a terrific hero. He was really good. I, I think like I, I mentioned the thing. I think Fast Sword probably be one of his best, where he's the uh, where where he's the lead. Uh, but he's also really good in secondary characters. He's the poor hapless guy in uh, 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 Deep Thrust that Angela Mao is is trying to kill, and poor guy didn't do fucking shit. <laughs> and he's got he's got this little pint sized female Terminator on his ass, uh, and, uh, and he'll always be known to me as uh, Superman Chu, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. master of kung fu. You know, but where he really really shines. Uh, uh, is as a villain. He's great as a villain. But I love the fact, though, that he doesn't just play villains, that he's just, you know, he's, he's just an all-around uh, genre icon. Yeah. Have you seen The Victim, the Sammo Hung movie, The Victim? Now, you know, I, 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 I've never finished watching it. I've, I've watched it. I, I started watching it a couple of times, and I've never finished it. Not because I didn't like it. I just never... Uh, I've always heard that this really good. Yeah, it's incredible. I think that movie... Whenever I introduce it, I always say that I feel like it's like the Paul Schrader movie of Kung Fu movies because it's mm-hmm. Lung Kar Yan just being pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed until he finally explodes at the mm-hmm. end of that movie. But Chang Yi plays the main villain in that. And then Wilson Tong is... Is like, Beardy in that? Yeah, he's the star. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so like, yeah Beardy's in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's incredible. But yeah, and Chang Yi in that, he's not doing the long gray hair the wig mm-hmm. or anything he just ha- has an eye patch on but he's amazing in, in that movie you should definitely finish that one and then there's a um uh, uh, I, I make a reference in the uh, just a vague reference in uh, um the wang Yu piece about um a movie it's 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 pretty good it's not one of the great ones uh but it's fun for what it is is a wang Yu film uh, a dragon squad yeah which is sort of like his three the hard way but actually for the hard way <laughs> right <laughs> Yeah, because you've got uh, you've got Wang Yu, who is the Steve McQueen of Asia. Uh, you've got Shang Yi, who is the Lee Van Cleef of Asia. You got Ching Sing, who is the Charles Bronson of Asia, and you've got Cam Kong, who I think is kind of like the William Smith of Asia. <laughs> and you have them all together in in, in, in in one movie playing the playing the good guys. Yeah, I love when Shang Yi shows up. He's like dressed in this really snazzy like duck hunting outfit like he looks like he's like just been duck hunting with Clark Gable and Howard Hawks you know in the 40s (laughs) that's incredible 
Um, well, your list of villains, just like your list of directors, I have someone I think should be added to your mm. list. Because you have Lowly, uh, Wang Zhang Li, the Silver Fox from Invisible yeah. Armor and Snake Needle Shadow, Zhang Yi that we talked about, Ku Fang. Um, I would put, I don't know if you're going to agree with this because he didn't always play like the main villain. A lot of times he was just the main henchman. But uh, uh-huh. Wang, Wang Lung Wei from Shabu. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But, uh, I, think because, I think because he didn't always play the, uh, 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 the main guy. Right. Is, yeah. And I don't want to just keep listing and listing people. I could have, uh, 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 what's the guy's name? He's the bad guy in Fonsik, um, bon bon uh, whatever. The guy, the guy who's the bad guy in, in Dragon Lord. Oh, yeah. I, uh, yeah, I can't remember his name. Yeah, that guy is amazing. I, yeah. S-L-I-K or something like that. Uh, yeah. uh, but he's fantastic, too. I love him in, in Dragon Lord. But to keep it down, I wanted to keep it down to three or four. All right. And uh, you, know, so it, it, you didn't specialize in playing tyrants. Probably didn't make the list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's why Tommy Lee's not on there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, Bruce Lai movies. You wrote reviews for two. Image of Bruce Lee and Soul Brothers of Kung Fu. Um, mm-hmm. It was interesting because I saw Image of Bruce Lee a really long time ago and didn't remember being that into it and then rewatched it this week and I was like, oh, this is a much better movie. Yeah. And I remember the fight scenes are really good in that movie. Yeah, um, they're, they're really cool. And I, I love the opening with the guy with the, uh, the arm. That was the right. only scene I remembered that from that. <laughs> It's the only scene I remember, but I saw it at the theater. It's the only one I remember. Yeah, the dude who's going to jump off the building. And it's even like the taxi driver music, the Bernard oh, yeah. Thor is playing during that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which that joke totally lands, too. It's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, uh, um, but, I, but maybe who steals that movie is that female in the movie, the kind of uh, the film fatale, uh, uh, Dana Lay. Right? She's terrific. And the way yeah. she manipulates everybody in the in, in the film is wonderful and and i didn't even realize it because he's completely unrecognizable is you know one of my favorite uh uh leads is john chang who's right. the star of the, um, one of the movies i keep mentioning all the time uh, 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 snake and monkey shadow and uh, but he always wears like yeah. his hair and bangs and so uh, when he puts a little pomade in his hair and kind of combs his hair back he's completely unrecognizable <laughs> <laughs> yeah but um, even the whole idea that it's like a, it follows Bruce Lyon as cop friend uh, 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 mustache as they're after this gang of, uh, uh, of counterfeiters. And the movie spends so much time with the counterfeiters. And frankly, the counterfeiters are, are more interesting than the cops. So by the time that John, John Chang and Bruce Lyon actually square off with each other, it's like the two leads of the movie are fighting each other. It's not like bad guy versus good guy. It's like, no, you've almost been watching a gangster movie. You've been following the lead. And you kind of want John Chang and his guys and his family to to get the paper they need to print their money. So you're kind of almost rooting for them a little bit. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and those ending fight scenes are really good too. A lot of the fight scenes through the movie, it's kind of one of those situations where the fight scenes are good, but I'm, find myself like why are they fighting like i'm not really oh, sure no no no, no. It's, no it's definitely cool yeah, there's, there's good fight scenes but but, but, but there, there's too many of them and they're, they're too far they're too unprovoked right yeah it has that late 70s too many unprovoked fight scene sequences in there uh yeah and then it doesn't really seem to be a rhyme or a reason of why the cops are doing what they're doing right 
Yeah. But again, that's why the gangster stuff actually ends up being so compelling. Yeah. And I'm not as, I'm more into the historical Kung Fu films. Stuff mm-hmm. set in the modern day usually don't work with me nearly as well, except... You're, 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 you're not all into, the, you're not into the, the, the wild t-shirts, uh, the wild Hong Kong uh, t-shirts and the, and, the, and the crazy fashions. <laughs> well, yeah, sometimes, I mean, I like the fashion. The fashion works for me really well. Um, but Soul Brothers... <laughs> Is in, in, in uh, Soul Brothers and Kung Fu, I just can't wait for, uh, for a new character to show up so I can see what t-shirt he's wearing. <laughs> right. They do wear great t-shirts in that movie, for sure. But Soul Brothers and Kung Fu is the one that really works for me. That's yeah. the one, because um, I think it, it feels like it's still made like one of the historical films. There's still a training yeah. sequence in it and everything. Like It still plays out like one of those films. So that one I love. I think that's probably my favorite of the modern Kung Fu films. Set in well, yeah, it, 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 might be, it might be my favorite of the, it might at the end of the day be my favorite of the, of the modern ones too. I mean, it's one of those movies where it's like, um, Soul Brothers Kung Fu, I mean, other than the fact that I really love Bruce Lai in that film, uh, and, I, and, I, uh, and I love Lo Mang in the film, and they're fantastic together. And, and and then, you know, my heart goes out to Lone, Lone Max's character. I mean, I think it does have that feeling like, like I get when I watch a, a Switchblade Sisters where I actually like both girls and you know they're going to end up fighting each other. It's, 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 it's heart-wrenching knowing that it, you're, heading, you're heading towards there because you actually care about them. Um, but uh, having said that, every time I watch it, I'm really caught up emotionally at the end. And I'm a bit at a loss of why I get so emotionally caught up with this crazy ass movie. Um, there's a few movies that that get that, and it was, and, and it's, and it's. Uh, I don't know if I even got it across in the review, but it's like you know, I feel a little bit that way in my review for the mothers. I feel when I when I watch the movie, the mothers, I get emotionally caught up in those girls, and I and uh, it, it means something to me by the time it gets to the end of the movie and. Uh, and I'm, uh, I, I, I try, I do, I think, I think I do a, a pretty good job of describing why, but, but, but there's, but, you know, but there's a, you know, there's an X, Y element that I can't put my finger on, that it just works for me, that I, that's that, un, that I can't describe. Um, I feel that way in uh, the Hong Kong, the modern Hong Kong uh, uh, movie, Big Bullet. I mean, I'm really emotionally, so emotionally invested by the end of that movie, and I'm kind of at a loss to describe well for the simple fact that it's, I mean, uh, because it's like about a zillion other cop movies. It, it shouldn't be that much better right. than, than about a hundred other uh, 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 80s, 90s cop movies. But it is. It, they don't work in the same, they, they don't work in the same emotional register as Big Bullet. And those other uh, uh, movies of that era, modern day movies of that era of the, of the late 70s, early 80s, they don't work in the same emotional register. I, I don't care about those characters the way I do. Now, having said that about uh, uh, Soul Brothers of, uh, of Kung Fu, there's two different endings. W- what is the ending that you're familiar with? Um, well, let's see. He fights Lo Mang. How does it end? Does it end with Carl Scott dying or not? Yes, yes. Carl Scott is dead. Yeah. Is there an ending where he doesn't die? Yes. The theatrical release. Really? 
the theatrical, yeah. If, 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 you get the, if you get the print from uh, uh, Harry Guerra, he's got the theatrical release. The video versions has Carl Scott died. All right. The theatrical release, not only does he not die, <laughs> it ends in complete triumph with Bruce Lai throwing his arm around Carl Scott to a freeze frame of the Rocky thing. <laughs> That's amazing. If you watch it on YouTube, you watch the Xenon uh, video release of it, it's the Carl Scott dying in his arms. But yeah. the theatrical version that we always saw at the theaters that played in, in, in black theaters uh, for four years, uh, for like years continuously, it always ended with the Rocky theme in a, in a, in a, uh, a freeze frame triumph. Yeah, that's interesting. So I guess they probably did that for that purpose, right? To play in the inner city theaters. They had that other ending. Is that why? No, I think it's probably, you know, I don't think they were that, I don't think they were that clever about it. I think they probably, uh, I think they, I think it was probably one of those situations where, okay, for Taiwan, we'll do this. Yeah. For Hong Kong, we'll do this. For mainland, we'll do this. For Korea, we'll do that. Why not do this? Why not do that? And they probably just, I mean, it, it's probably just completely fucking random. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. I'll have to get that print. I've never shown that movie, so I need to show it to a crowd. Oh, Yo, you got to get it from Harry Guerrero. Yeah, nice. Um, now, the other thing is, uh, uh, I want to go back one thing, though, about uh, uh, Lee Sound Now, because uh, uh, when I talk about it, I wanna, you know, when I write about Fatal News, Fatal Fist, I don't go so much into Lee Sound Now. I'm going to go into more in, in, a, in a piece I wrote on uh, 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 the uh, Jane Green statuette, which I'm uh, a fan of. Um, but one of the things that, that makes his films really special and I think kind of sets him apart. Uh, we did talk about his characters, we talked about his uh, uh, end fights, but it's the fastness of his fights, the, the, the ferocity of the fights, the fastness of the movement. Now, a lot of most, all practically, uh, um, martial art directors used, used a, a speeded up film. Mm -hmm. sped up the camera to uh, uh, to do their fights. Uh, by the way, uh, on Kill Bill, we didn't speed up anything. That's, that's what you see is what you get. Um, but, uh, uh, but, you know, but that's just a technique that they, that they always use. They sped up the camera. And, you know, sometimes it's uh, uh, 23 frames a second, sometimes it's 21, sometimes it's 20, um, some of them it's 19. Um, but for me, a lot of directors pull it off, but for the most part, it, it, it's uh, it's done. It, it's a thing they do. It's just a thing they do. It's 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 a it's a cause and effect. It's just a technique that they use. Lee Sound Now is the only one that I think uses it in an artistic way. All right, I think there is a true ferocity to his films that the speeded up frame, the speed, the, the use of speeded up frames. It's not just a, it's not just a technique to sell the fight. It's not just a technique to make it uh, 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 to sell it better. But it's actually used in an artistic way. To me, he uh, he is to speed it up action what Sam Peckinpah 
is to slow down action. Uh, and the way a lot of directors can use slow motion violence and slow motion deaths after Peckinpah to just goose it. And yeah, it always looks interesting, but it's not necessarily, but it doesn't have the same emotional impact or the same artistic impact that it has when Peckinpah does it. That is how I feel Lisa Nam's sped up action works. There is a, it's just, his films are fast. There's just, they're, 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 they're fast, they're ferocious, they're brutal. They are in every way of all the directors that we've mentioned, uh, the most painful death blows in the history of the genre are Lee Soundman movies. His death blows are amazing. They hurt. His films hurt. You watch them like, oh, 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 oh. You, you grab your side, you grab your, your, your chest, you grab your, your ribs. Uh, people get, you know, it's just like you know, they, they, they get fucked up. And, um, uh, and there's just that, that ferocity is, is, is his aesthetic. And that, that ferocity is what he has to bring to the genre. Yeah, I completely agree with that. That's great. Um, another trick that people use sometimes, which I don't like, is the trimming of the frames. Sometimes you'll yeah. see that. Um, I'm a big Joseph Quo fan. Uh, but he did that sometimes in his movies, and like Mystery of Chess Boxing does that, and it's a little unfortunate when it happens. Yeah, I, 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 I consider that I consider that cheating. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that falls into the cheating category as far as I'm <laughs> right. Um, so another movie I hadn't seen that you wrote a review about uh, the Al Adamson movie Dynamite Brothers. Yeah, <laughs> the black cat from Watts. The Kung Fu Cat from Hong Kong chained together. Nobody could handle them, but when they're set free, all hell breaks loose. See for the first time Kung Fu against street fighting. The Dynamite Brothers take on anybody, anytime. You'll never run fast enough to escape the incredible fury of the Dynamite Brothers. I think I might feel basically the way you do about Al Adamson. I'm not a huge fan. Those movies yeah. don't work very well for me. And I like waited all week to watch this movie. I didn't watch it till like two nights ago. I kept putting it off. I kept rewatching like, oh, I'm going to rewatch Chinese Boxer instead. I don't really want to watch <laughs> yeah. Dynamite Brothers. And then I watched it and it was really funny because I was almost like half paying attention. And I thought it was going to be one of these movies where I'm more into like, oh, it's a time capsule you know, yeah. enjoying that aspect more than the movie. And I really got wrapped up in that movie. It's really you, good. You could get wrapped up in an Al Adamson movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's great. The leads are great. The story's great. It's an amazing movie. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, don't know if I, I, I don't know if I would have watched that if uh, um, the film critic, my, my buddy Elvis Mitchell, hadn't recommended it to me. And because uh, uh, I'm not an Al Adamson fan, you know, and so... Uh, and, I've watched this stuff, but I'm like, yeah, it's exactly like Dan is saying. It's like, yeah, it's a, uh, it's like I'm watching it through an aquarium. 
to some, and sometimes literally because that's how bad the photography is. <laughs> uh, um, uh, but it's a, there's a, a distancing quality to some of that. But um, color me gobsmacked when I watched uh, uh, Dynamite Brothers. I go, holy shit, I, I actually give a fuck what's going on in this movie. I actually care about these guys. And yeah, that's my whole point at, at, at the end is uh, when they run off and there's a freeze frame and it stops. And I'm like, shit, I want to see part two. I want to <laughs> see another adventure with these guys. And I'm like, holy shit. Al Adamson is leaving me wanting more. <laughs> yeah, Quentin, that's oh, one I, I I'm gonna. <laughs> I definitely want to see this one, but I'm one of those suckers who ordered the Al Adamson Blu-ray set, which is coming next month, and Dynamite Brothers is in that set, so I'm saving that to watch on Blu-ray when it comes out. Well, one of the things the movie did is it it, it gave me a, a slightly new appreciation for Al Adamson, and um. I've now got another Al Adamson movie that I don't like as much as Dynamite Brothers, but I do kind of like. I, it, it falls under the category of, oh, no, that's enjoyable. That was, that was I had a good time. And not in an ironic kind of way. Uh, is uh, Nurse Sherry. Now, for those who have seen The Exorcist, Carrie, and Ruby, here is new unspeakable horror in Nurse Sherry. From a doomed medical operation to the return of an evil human soul driven to evil in a strange and gruesome story from the other side of life. Yeah, it's also known as Black Voodoo, all right? Uh, the, the, when it came out originally, it probably has about a zillion titles, but when it came out originally, it had a, it had a whole Carrie ripoff kind of poster to it. But Nurse Sherry is actually, Nurse Sherry is a lot of fun too. And it has some of the same people that will pop up in uh, Dynamite Brothers or in uh, Black Heat, all right? Uh, but also, you, uh, but you, you, uh, if you watched uh, Dynamite Brothers just uh, uh, a couple of days ago, uh, we lost Timothy Brown. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, Stud Brown uh, died last week. Oh, wow, I did not know that. Yeah, he, wow, he's, he's, he's really great in that movie. He's terrific in the film. Yeah. <laughs> he's awesome in the film. And, and then, you know, he did another film with Alan Adamson, which is Black Heat, with uh, him and Russ Tambler. And, and, and Black Heat is not as good as Dynamite Brothers, but, but it's still a little bit, it's still pretty fun. And now that you know who Timothy Brown is, you like it even more. You're even more invested. Yeah. Because you get to see Timothy Brown again. But, um, uh, literally, we put that review up, and three days later, wow, uh, Timothy Brown uh, passed away. Wow, it's too bad. Um, that movie also had something I've never seen, I don't think, in a kung fu movie before. Um, at the end, there's the big fight scene, and it's really common, of course, kung fu movie. Every everybody, all the villains run into the room, and you know, like the Chinese boxer scene, the hero kicks their asses, but they all run in, and he beats up like two of them, and then they all run away. I, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was great. And then Timothy well, Brown and his friends catch him outside. But that well, was one of the things that's actually interesting about that film is the fact that. For an, for a shoestring American movie, the fight scenes aren't bad. The fight scenes are pretty good. I, I, I think you can tell Alan Tang brought some Hong Kong choreographers with him mm -hmm. uh, to do the fights because uh, the fight scenes in most uh, uh, shoestring uh, American-made martial art movies are terrible. Yeah. Uh, I, 
I love Death Promise, okay? But the fights are crap in Death Promise. Yeah. I still like it. I still enjoy it. It's actually, that movie completely works. But the fights are, actually, that's one of the good ones, frankly, to tell you the truth. That's, that's, on, the, uh, that's on the upper scale, all right? Most of the stuff is like Velvet Smooth or Kill Squad yeah. or uh, the fucking Leo Fong movies, <laughs> which are usually just a, 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 abysmal fights. And, uh, and, and forget about Al Adams' uh, Jim Kelly movies, the, the Black Samurai yeah. and, and, uh, 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 and Death Dimension. Oh, my God, forget about that. Even the Death Dimension has, 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 has a charm to it. But, um, uh, uh, but, but, but no, but to watch an Al Adamson movie and actually, holy shit, these kung fu fights aren't bad. What the fuck is this? The whole movie, I'm like, what the fuck is this? What, what this is? This is so much better than I would ever imagine. And yet, it actually has some of the things that I actually like in Al Adamson's movies. It has all that shooting around Los Angeles without a permit, and so you get all those wonderful locations. You get all those places, you know, in 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 in, in Watts and in Hollywood. Uh, you know, these places, these restaurants, these theaters, these. Uh, businesses, these signs that just aren't there anymore. I mean, I really do think that when it, came, when it comes to Los Angeles uh, 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 as a historical record, those shoestring grade Z directors like, uh, uh, like Al Adamson and Braden Clark and uh, the, just, uh, uh, John Bud Cardos, all right, just going out there and shooting all over Los Angeles, that is a record of Los Angeles at that time, unlike anything else. And 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 strangely enough, and Quinn Martin, Quinn Martin's uh, uh, TV shows shot all around the valley. All right, uh, they 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 capture Los Angeles in a way. However, in the Quinn Martin shows, they're they're, they're moving too fast. In the Al Adamson, is it's uh, in Al Adamson or these the great Z guys? It's a big wide shot of Sunset and Cuenca. And so you get you get to really take it in, and you know, if there's a if there's a, a a marquee showing a movie, you get to read what's playing at the movie. They're not cutting around. No, you get to you get to examine the poster. You get to read everything on the marquee. Right, completely drink it in. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious. There's a movie I watched that I actually own a print of, and I'm just curious if you've ever seen it because I think you would love it. Um, it's a swordplay movie called Force to Fight or Invincible Super Chan. Have you seen that movie? Oh, shit. You know, I have that, but I've never watched it. I have that on video. I, I, Invincible Super Chan. I have that, but I've never, I, I bought it because the box looked cool, but I've never seen it. Yeah. You got, as I was this week re-watching this stuff and noticing the stuff that you really love, I was like, I think Quentin would lose his mind over that movie. I hadn't seen it. I did an event in Austin at Austin Film Society with Lars and mm -hmm. he pulled out a print of that and it just rocked the house and blew my mind. It's incredible. If, if you have the uncut version, it's incredibly violent. <clears throat> it's huge crowd pleaser. It's amazing. I had to get a print of it after that. My print has a, some of the violence cut out. It's a little unfortunate, but. What, what, what era is it? It's like 71. It's early. Oh shit, really? Is yeah. that early? It's early, and it's shot in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I really recognize anyone in it. It's low budget, um, but it's just a massive crowd pleaser. I have the trailer for it, and it's one of those trailers that was obviously made for 
inner city audience, and it calls mm -hmm. it the most kung fu ferocious movie of them all. <laughs> right. hey, you know, in, in, uh, just before we leave off, uh, Lee Sao now. Uh, uh, speaking of movies for urban audiences, <coughs> talking about Lisa Nam, uh, we can't mention Lisa Nam without mentioning Tattoo Dragon. Right. Jim Kelly and Tao Tan Lai. Yeah. Yeah, that's another one that actually works that I love. Yeah, like Soul Brothers of Kung Fu. <laughs> that definitely works. That definitely works. And by the way, and just, and, um, and frankly, while I'm not the biggest fan of Wong Tao, uh, even though he's done a lot of really good movies, I'll pretty much watch anything with Tao Tan Lai who's also known as Flash Legs because uh, he had the, 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 the greatest kung fu fighting kicks. I, uh, if there's anybody who can kick better than Tao Ten Lang, I've never seen him. Yeah. But, uh, uh, but just to see Tao Ten Lang and Jim Kelly yeah. in the yeah. same movie together. And by the way, Tao Ten Lang, like Bruce Lai, actually wears those 70s fashions really well. <laughs> it does. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that, movie, that movie's really good. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a fun one. Um, another director that I want to mention, one thing, something else I want to mention to the people listening to this is uh, being here in uh, in Israel. I've been kind of disconnected from um, my normal uh, uh, video DVD collections. I brought a, I brought a bunch of junk over with me, but I but I'm used to having a ton of stuff all around, and so I feel like you know. I'm, Somebody cut off my leg and, and uh, <laughs> cut off cut off the hand of one arm and the arm and, and the other arm. Right? Cut off my right hand and my left arm um, and uh, and the foot because I'm just used to having all my stuff uh, uh, at my disposal and I don't. Um, however, when it comes to martial art movies, that hasn't been so bad because I didn't realize how you could almost find everything on YouTube. All the stuff that I've been collecting forever is on YouTube in about the same quality that I have it in. Yeah, I know. It's true. It's almost, except for Shaw Brothers movies, almost every single Kung Fu movie ever made is on YouTube. It's pretty much on YouTube. And like I said, the, the quality that I have in them was never great to the fucking beginning. You right. know, I was always, there was always like, it was always a bootleg video of some sort. And even when I had the straight ones, you know, it was like a, a crappy print that they did. Yeah. You know, I, so many, so many of those I watched where uh, it's the bootleg. When I originally saw him, it'd be the bootleg. And then it would be where they didn't even pan and scan. And the movies yeah. are all scope. So it'd be like the end showdown would happen where the, the hero and the villain are on either side of the frame. And then you don't even see them. You're just looking at the background, listening to the <laughs> English dub. <laughs> I watched a well, lot yeah. of movies that way. Well, it was funny because they, they, they closed them all down. But uh, there was this period of time in the uh, in the late 90s where there was about three or four four might be too many but there was uh, there was at least two but i think there might have been more i think there might have been three i only went to one of them um there was three uh uh little stores in times square that uh, in the broadway area that just sold bootleg kung fu movies and uh, uh, one of the, the store that I went into was a uh, 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 42nd Street Chamber of Shaman. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And it's a little dinky store about the size of like a shoe repair store. And it's just uh, uh, bootlegs of uh, the old video cassettes. Uh, 
of uh, kung fu films that came out a long time ago. But it wasn't just a bunch of random crap. They had all the good stuff. They had all the good. I mean, it was all bootlegs, but they had all the good stuff. And uh, and they had many copies of it, so you could like you know. So it wasn't just it wasn't a renting place. You bought it, and so and that was right when I that was when I was writing. Um, uh, I was actually acting in a play on Broadway, and I just took a walk, and it happened to be by the rehearsal hall. Like, what the fuck is this place? And and, uh, and it was just getting to be the time where it was getting hard to find video stores that had this stuff because they got rid of most of their stuff. They had some concessions. They 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 dumped them, and so I found this place. And I was actually able to like fill holes. I mean, they you know they had all the different classics, and then they even knew the you know, uh, they even knew some of the names of stuff that I only knew the uh, American titles of. Like, oh no, that you know, like you know, Dragon versus uh, 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 Snake Fist versus Dragon. Oh no, that's Snake Fist and Eagle Shadow. That's Snake Fist and Monkey Shadow. <laughs> and, they get, and then I would see, and I take, and I buy, and then I, I actually saw it with the actual opening credit sequence that they cut out in the American. In the American version, I'm like, oh my god, this opening credit sequence is amazing. Um, but the thing is, though, uh, the thing that was a crack up is like, so I, I was there all the time buying all kinds of stuff, and that was right when I was writing Kill Bill. So right when I needed all this stuff, was uh, I had it. The thing that was was, was funny was uh, other celebrities would go to this store too, and you would see their pictures on the wall with the owner. And I was up there with the owner too. However, I'm the only white guy on the wall with the owner. <laughs> Everybody else, it's like it's like Wesley Snipes and the owner of 42nd Chambers of Shaolin. It's Rissa and the 42nd Chambers of Shaolin. Uh, uh, Sam Jackson and the guy from 42nd Chambers of Shaolin. <laughs> Paul Calderon and the 42nd Chambers of Shaolin. <laughs> That's that brings up an interesting point, though that. You know, when all these movies played in the U.S., they either played in the Chinese neighborhoods or they played to the black audiences. You know, that was the huge audience for these films. Well, what happened was, you know, for that time period, that 73, 72, 73 time period, it was mainstream. They, they, they played. But then, you know, it was a fad and the fad, you know, had its day and ran out. And it should have went away. It should have went away. But... They still did popular in uh, uh, the black areas. They still did popular in black neighborhoods and in black theaters. And so, so it was truly more than you know, more than uh, 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 Chinatown theaters or something. Especially as far as an American release with an you know English dub, um, it was the black audience that kept martial art films alive, uh, like through the rest of the seventies into the eighties, into the early eighties. It was, uh, uh, without the black audience, they would have just disappeared. Right. And that's why they started having, like, uh, 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 urban pandering titles, you know, as much as they could. But at a certain point, at a certain point in time, by the end of, by the end of the 70s, going into the 80s, before the emergence of Jackie Chan, before Jackie Chan really emerges in a big way, it is Bruce Lai who kept the films being released. I mean, if it came to an actual legit release where they did a TV spot, there was a trailer uh, where like they actually made a poster and the poster got uh, 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 a newspaper uh, ad. It was an actual, uh, 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 it was backed by a newspaper advertisement. By 1979, by 1980, you're not getting that many TV spots, but rarely. But you, you'll, get a, you'll get a newspaper ad. 
So you're actually getting an actual release backed by advertisement. And by that point in time, it was pretty much, uh, it's going to get that kind of, that kind of push is a Bruce Lee movie. Yeah. Did you see the Venoms movies in theaters? Did they play in LA? No, no, I didn't. I didn't. It's like a, a movie. The, the Venom movies, a lot of those Shaw Brothers films of that type, um, by the time that they were getting released, um, uh, World Northall was releasing them in, in, in America. And um, so it's like, no, I, uh, I came to them later. I, I, I came to them through 42nd Street. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was in Boston showing Kung Fu movies a couple of years ago. And the film programmer took me to a place like that that was in downtown Boston that's still there. And all they sell are Kung Fu, VHS and DVDs, <laughs> uh, weed pipes and knives. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that place sounds amazing. Yeah, still exists downtown Boston. Well, you know, in uh, uh, England, I'm sure they don't, uh, sure it's not there anymore. But you know, um, uh, uh, Ken Russell's son, uh, Toby Russell, uh, had a Fighting Stars magazine, run Eastern Heroes, Eastern Heroes magazine. Uh, my first trip in um, in London, uh, not my first trip. One, one, one of one of it was the first trip that I did uh, post Pulp Fiction. Um, I find out that they actually have a little video store. And it is like, it's, it is Toby Russell and uh, Rick Baker run this, run, run this little video store. And my girlfriend at the time, uh, her name was Grace, who used to actually work with me at Video Archives. I hear about this place, and so I find out where, and where, where it's at, and I, we get driven down there. And oh my God, and it's this little tiny video store. And, they, you know, and, uh, and it's not bootlegs from them, because they actually had their own, uh, Eastern Heroes had their own little video box. So they, they, uh, I still have a bunch of those Eastern Eastern Hero uh, uh, British tapes, and so it's uh, and, you know, and, and, uh, uh, and it was a whole store just dedicated to Hong Kong films, but from you know, but from a, a, a Western perspective, and it, and 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 the guys around the magazine, uh, uh, Toby and Rick, all right, are in the goddamn store. <laughs> That's great. I bought some of my prints from Toby Russell. I got my Invincible Armor print, my print of the victim from him. And he hung out on Shaw Brothers sets back yeah. in the day. He would send me photos of him hanging out with Gordon Liu and Lau Kar Lung, and then this tall, gangly white guy hanging out with them. Yeah, I got my, uh, I, I got my uh, 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 Fistful of Tappan's print from uh, Rick Baker. Oh, wow. <laughs> When I say Rick Baker, we're not talking about the, the makeup guy, Rick Baker. We're talking about the exciting uh, double duo of Toby Russell and Rick Baker, who are the, who are, who are the British equivalent of us. <laughs> right. When the New Beverly did a series of Lee Sao uh, Nam uh, movies last year, uh, on the New Beverly blog, we actually posted an interview that Toby Russell did uh, with Lee Sao Nam in his Eastern Heroes magazine. You can still read that on our site. Absolutely, and it's a terrific interview, and it's it's it's, it's exciting. That, that was I was very excited to see that. That was great. I, I have well, a question. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, what I always love to hear you talk about, Quentin, is the films that you show your cast and crew when you're gearing up to make a movie. And I'm wondering what sort of films you showed everyone uh, when you were doing Kill Bill. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, um, hmm. Well, well, wait a minute now. Well, part of the thing though is uh, I didn't, I, I didn't. My collection of kung fu prints wasn't quite as good then as it is now. But uh, 
I, I think I, I, I think the ones that I showed, I, um, I think I showed uh, Fist of Fury 2, and I showed uh, uh, Snake and Monkey Shadow, I showed Snake and Eagle Shadow, and I showed Jade Claw. Those are my three, those, uh, uh, in fact, that's my, to me, that's my great triple feature, is Snake and Monkey Shadow, Jade Claw, and uh, Snake Fist and Eagle Shadow. Those are that, that's that's my killer triple feature. That's the that's the triple feature that I showed at, at, in Austin that brought the house down and made me really realize what I had. And uh, uh, when I go on the road, the show uh, Kung Fu movies, I did a uh, uh, I went to uh, uh, Iceland and did a double feature of Snake Fist, uh, uh, Snake Fist and Monkey Shadow and Jade Claw, and it brought the house down. <laughs> it, played, it played like gangbusters. It played great. Those those are my three. Do you have, what are your dream prints, dream Kung Fu prints that you're always trying to find? Oh, gosh. Uh, um, my number one is Chinese boxer. That's my number one I'm trying to find. Oh, yeah, yeah. I would like, yeah, I would, I, I would love to get, uh, I would love to get Chinese boxer. I would love to get, uh, I would love to get Chinese boxer. I would love to get uh, uh, Beach of the War Gods. Um, I would love to get Hot, Cool, and the Vicious. It's out there. I think you have a print of it. I, I want to I find my own at some point. All right, you know, I, I don't have it, but somebody else does. Yeah, it is out there. Yeah. Yeah, this is, I have access to it. I can, I can show it, but I want my own. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, but, you know, there's, no, but there's, you know, frankly, uh, okay, you know, those are the easy ones to say, and we talked about it, but no, actually, to tell you the truth, what I would really love is I would love, uh, I would love Lady Kung Fu. Yeah. I would love to get, uh, I, I'll take a Hong Kong print of Lady Kung Fu, but I would rather have, I'll take a Hong Kong print of Papia, but I would rather have the English dub Lady Kung Fu. Yeah. Uh, but I feel, you know, but I feel that way about, uh, you know, but I, but I, I go all the way down the line when it comes to the Angela Mao movies. I would love to have uh, 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 Deadly China Doll. I would love to have Deep Thrust. But in particular, I would love to, I would love to have uh, uh, When Taekwondo Strikes. Here comes a unique and devastating force, Taekwondo a very lethal form of Kung Fu. Jun Rhee, he's called the father of Taekwondo in America. See why five million Americans worship this amazing grandmaster. This shocking saga of rebellion and revenge from World Northall. When Taekwondo strikes. That would, that would be fantastic. In fact, I mean, I love her movies, but to me they are so seminal for that time period, and I don't have any prints of, you know, no. the, the prints that I have of Angela Mallon are, are not the classic. I have no. Return of the Tiger, and I have her on a couple of other things. I have Stoner. Which I like. That's that's good. It's good to have stone. Right? Uh, um, but I, you know, but uh, you know, I, I don't have. I, uh, but you know, but she has a, a four film trifecta that would that I would I would love to have. One of the other ones I would love to have, and one of the, the actually one of the directors I did want to uh, speak about uh, before we wrapped it up is uh, the female director uh, uh, Kei Bo Shu. Yeah. And. Uh, uh, in particularly her film, I think she did a lot of really interesting, she did some really interesting movies, but I think her, you know, her classic, her, uh, if she's the Dorothy Arzner of, uh, of martial arts cinema, uh, her dance girl dance 
is uh, uh, prostitutes, prostitutes, bandits, bandits, prostitutes, bandits, and gold. Silver, uh, silver, silver, I think, silver, yeah. Yeah. Silver. yeah. I actually haven't seen that movie. I know about it, but I haven't seen it. Oh, that's on YouTube. You should watch it. It's 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 fantastic. It's fantastic. And uh, uh, one of the collections that we had supposedly had it. But then we tried to get it because we had a, a cable shoe festival and we, we couldn't track it down. It's also known as Battle of Shaolin. So actually there's a pretty good DVD out there of that. But uh, uh, you really kind of need to see it under uh, uh, bandits, prostitutes, and, and, and silver. And um, uh, again, and uh, wonderful cast of characters. They're all fighting for the, uh, this cachet of, of silver. It's very spaghetti western influenced. Uh, in fact, the soundtrack is from the Big Gun Down. They they use the Big Gun Down soundtrack throughout the whole fucking film. Um, and it has a very uh, spaghetti western kind of uh, uh, nihilism about it. That's really terrific. And uh, uh, and by the way, Phil, I was a little annoyed at you uh, when uh, uh, when we had our uh, on this podcast when we had our uh, Cabo Shoe Festival because. Uh, um, one, I was annoyed at all you guys because we're having a cable shoot festival. You guys didn't know what that was about, all right? It's like, <laughs> just do a little bit of research, all right? Uh, watch one of our two of our movies. But the thing about it was, is when Phil, it came to you to describe who she is. And she goes, well, you know, uh, well, no, she, it's very interesting because she is one of the only, uh, 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 she, she is one of the few. She is one of the few women who is out there directing martial arts. No, she wasn't one of the few women directing martial art movies. She was the only woman directing martial art movies. There was nobody else. There was her. That was it. Nobody else. I think to this day, there's nobody else. You know, uh, maybe somebody, maybe there's some gal uh, with an iPhone sitting in their backyard. But when it comes to of the industry that we're talking about, she was the only one, not one of the few, the only one. Yeah, I have a print of her uh, Blood of the Dragon, which is a phenomenal. <laughs> oh, yeah, we showed your Blood of the Dragon. Yeah, you did. Yeah, which again with uh, Jimmy Wang Yu is in that movie. Yeah, and, and 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 there is something kind of amazing about. Cabo Shoe about the fact that, you know, we've been talking about a lot of violent movies, but Blood of the Dragon is right up there. Yeah. In the most violent of all the films that we're talking about. The most incredible action film ever made, Blood of the Dragon. <laughs> Starring the most incredible performer ever to appear on the screen. And the ultimate weapon, six feet of silver death. Wong Yu, Asia's greatest superstar, the king of the martial arts, is the dragon. the dragon, taking on all comers in a film which explodes with action from its opening moment to its last frame. And I think it's pretty fucking great that a female directed one video in the top tier, if not the top of the most violent of, the, of all the martial art movies. The whole last hour is a bloodbath. Yeah. 
Jimmy Wang Yu cutting down everybody with his silver spear. It's incredible. They say it's a sequel to Beach of the War God. I don't think it has. I don't think it's a sequel to Beach of the War God, but it it's it's vaguely similar insofar as the end fight is past the movie. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, when I showed it. Um, I had two or three people come up to me afterwards, actually, who said that movie must have been a huge influence on Kill Bill. <laughs> no, I don't think I did. Uh, no, no, I had seen it before I did it. Um, I don't think it it per se was an influence on, on on Kill Bill, but but it as part of a collective of those movies that I was watching was an influence on on Kill Bill. I also even dig the fact that. Uh, Wang Yu almost seems to be his character from Golden Swallow. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. He's dressed all in white, and he's kind of, and he's, and he's slightly more the pious guy that he yeah. was in his Shaw Brothers time, as opposed to, you know, uh, uh, Jimmy Wang McQueen. You know, the right. way he is. I really like when Jimmy Wang Yu kind of developed that persona as his career. I love you know. that persona. I like that far more than the pious guy. Yeah. Well, it's really unique for Hong Kong, too, because usually humility is the most important trait. And Jimmy Wang Yu, that doesn't apply at all. He's cocky as hell in all of those oh, movies. He's, he's a bastard in some of those movies. I mean, there are times in a Jimmy Wang Yu movie, you start feeling a little sorry for the villain. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, man yeah. called Tiger. I, 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 where I like the villain so much that I'm rooting for the villain. That's I'm used to that, right? Because I I dig the villain, so I'm rooting for him against the pious the pious guy. But like, you don't really often have times where you're almost feeling sorry for the villain. And then every once in a while in Wang Yu movies, you almost feel sorry for him because he's he's such a bastard. Yeah, especially in that movie, Man Called Tiger. <laughs> that movie, yeah, yeah, and um, I, I really. Even, Except of seeing uh, a Hong Kong-made Yakuza movie, and them really pulling it off. Yeah. It has a vibe like a Yakuza film. Yeah, it does. It has a really unique look. And I think your review, you compare it to Yakuza movies and Italian crime movies, and I think that's a really good call. Because you wouldn't necessarily watch it and think like it's a Kenji Fukasaku movie or something, but it looks... <laughs> It doesn't look necessarily like a Hong Kong movie. It looks no. It doesn't look like a Hong Kong movie. It's not like it's not like a Kenji Hukasaku film. But they're trying to make it like a Kenji Hukasaku film, and they're not quite pulling that pulling it off. But it sure as hell doesn't look like a Hong Kong movie. Right. It doesn't. Well, in particular, it doesn't look like a Golden Harvest movie. Yeah, it's true. And it doesn't look like it. And it doesn't look like a Fernando De Leo movie. But it's 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 in the ballpark. Yeah, it looks like it's influenced by it, definitely. Yeah. It's really strange. I really love the final fight scene or fight scene towards the end where it's common in kung fu movies for the villains run in with hatchets. But in yeah. that movie, they run in with full-on axes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, and uh, I mean, the, I mean, you know, uh, I mean, the bloodbath aspect of the end of that movie is off the charts. It's 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 amazing, and not only that, it's Wang Yu fights in a white suit. Yeah, yeah. And if I'm mistaken, I think he's wearing a red turtleneck, a white suit over a red turtleneck, <laughs> and, I, and he's drenched in blood. 
by the end of the movie. And they cut him to fucking shit. He's cut to ribbons. Yeah. Which, <laughs> and that, that stuff's interesting because it makes me wonder too, after he left Shaw Brothers, because I, in your review, it, I'm not sure how much Chang Che was upset with him, but it sounds like he was. But it oh, seems, he, oh, he was so pissed off. And he, hate, he hated him for the rest of his life. Yeah, because it seems like Jimmy Wang Yu in some of those movies, he's trying to out Chang Che, Chang Che. Like, get yeah, war I, gods, I, definitely. And then stuff like that, where, again, like wearing the white suit and then entering the scene and then being drenched in blood by the time you leave, that's pure Chang Che. He did that for his whole career. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it's also, you know, at the same time, though, it's also, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, I mean, in, in its own way, that it's also its debt to Hinji Kukasaku, all right, where, okay, that's not just condom full of blood spurting out, all right? No, they're, they're going for hoses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're going, they're, they're, they're hacking off arms and shit, you know, uh, in, in total Yakuza style. With blood, uh, with 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 blood, blood spurting, and you know, but that movie also has a really interesting uh, uh, thing in it, where um, it all ends up at a, a casino during a, a, a gambling game. And it's the same game with the dice and the cups that they use in Gotta Gamblers. And the movie has one dubious hero played by Wang Yu, and a whole passel of uh, bad guys, different different factions. Of, of bad guys, different you know, different crime families, and uh, it's really interesting. At the end of the movie, all the villains are brought together. All the villains you watched throughout the whole movie are brought together in that casino, and they're all playing against each other in, in the gam in the gambling game. And Wang Yu's not part of it; he's just witnessing. So it's actually kind of fascinating to get to know these different crime families and get to know the different villains. And now all the villains are competing against each other in the climactic. A gambling sequence and it's a fantastic gambling sequence with Lo Wei who's the director right playing like the the uh, uh, you know the the whale the uh, uh, you know, the high roller oh I didn't know that that's him yeah that's that, that's Lo Wei yes yeah, oh, wow. and I'm actually uh, I think Lo Wei gets a, a bum rap as far as the director is concerned I'm actually quite um, a fan of, uh, of a lot of his uh, uh, direction I, uh, I really like Lady Hermit I like uh, Shadow Whip uh, with a, a Shin Kei I'm not even, I'm not really a Shin Kei fan, but I like Shadow Whip. But I really, uh, I think the movies have gotten a really bad rap. I like a whole lot of the uh, the early Jackie Chan movies he did. And, and and people make it a point to try to put put them down, all right? Because, they, well, he didn't understand Jackie Chan. Jackie Chan was, you know, uh, uh, you know Jackie, Chan needed, Jackie Chan needed to break away from Lo Wei to do more of the comedy stuff. But some of the comedy stuff he did with Lo Wei, the first stuff he did, he did with Lo Wei, and it was quite good. Spiritual Kung Fu is very, very, uh, is very, very funny. It's almost like a George Marshall uh, uh, on and house comedy. Uh, Half a Loaf of Kung Fu is really funny. But one of the things about it that I really like is, especially because well, Jackie Chan did what Jackie Chan did. So we, you know, so he went off and worked with a, a, a sh uh, with a Golden Harvest and was able to follow his news and, and, and build an entire empire. So and that, that empire exists. So it happened. He didn't go the route that Lo Wei would have taken him. But I like the fact that he did those Lo Wei movies because you get to you, you get to see the movies that Jackie Chan would never go on to make. So like for instance, like you know, so like Dragon Fight 
is fantastic. That's a great revenge movie. And that's the kind of movie that Jackie Chan, when he left, would never do. But that's a great version of that movie. And I love, there's a love story in the movie that I can't stand. And so whenever I watch it, I, I skip over the love story part. But I love To Kill With Intrigue. Oh, I've never seen that. Oh, it's fantastic. I have actually a print of To Kill With Intrigue. I'll lend I'll, I'll you, you my print of To Kill With Intrigue. Nice. Um, actually, that'd be an interesting series to do, to just show those films before Jackie Chan's became Jackie Chan that we all know. It's really hard to find prints of them. I, I couldn't believe My favorite probably is To Kill With Intrigue because I love the female villain in it so much. She's great. She's one of my favorite, of all, of, she's one of my favorite female villains. And, uh, and she's got this group of killers called the Killer Bees. <laughs> that are that are uh, uh, that are uh, terrific. But she's wonderful in it, and uh, I couldn't. Believe, I just came across it in a, in a list somewhere of buying prints. Oh my god, skill with entry. So if I was ever going to get one of them, that would be the one I'd want. Um, but you know, if I could, if I could, I, I can get enough low weight prints to to have a low weight festival between tattoo uh, between a, 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 a tattoo dragon and a, a, a big boss and a fist of fury and to kill with intrigue and maybe a couple other ones but uh, i would love to, I, I would love to be able to show the early jackie chan movies in print. yeah um i'm also curious about you call sun chung the kubrick of shaw brothers or the kubrick i think you say kubrick of shaw yeah. brothers. um i haven't seen enough of his movies and i admit it i mean i love avenging eagle to kill a mastermind human lanterns i've seen all the major mm -hmm. ones, but what are the other ones you love? I think a lot of them are more obscure. Yeah, uh, well, one of, the, one, one of the other really great ones that you can, uh, you can get is uh, Kung Fu Instructor. Okay. Yeah, Kung Fu Instructor with uh, uh, Tai Lung. Mm -hmm. uh, there's Kung Fu Instructor, and there's another one with Tai, I'm, I'm spacing on it, another one with Tai Lung uh, that's all done around the same time as uh, uh, Avenging Eagle, Kung Fu Instructor, and there's another one that's right in there, and, and it's, it's gettable, it's out there. But also, he did Fistful of Talents. Oh, that's right, yep, yeah. Which that movie's so incredible, yeah. And I call him the, uh, um, uh, the Kubrick of, of Hong Kong because um, uh, he was very picky. He didn't shoot on an assembly line like the rest of these guys. He, uh, he took his time between movies, uh, he worked hard on pre-production on them in the way that they did. He just he wasn't on the assembly line the way these other guys the way these other guys were. You had to you really had to want you really had to romance him to get him to choose a project. He, he, he chose it very carefully, put a lot of thought into it, and so uh, there was intention behind his movies that uh, that's unusual for the industry. Yeah, that's great. So Run Run Shaw let him operate like that. It seems like Run Run was cracking the whip on everybody. Yeah, well, I think I think it was. I think like Kubrick, he had a situation where if you wanted him, that's how you, that's how you got him. And but also he didn't, he didn't do that many Shaw Brothers movies. Right. So yeah. I think after I think after 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 a few of his Shaw Brothers movies, you know, like uh, uh, he operated outside of that system. Like you know, Cable Shu only did one, only one, uh, only one of her uh, Lady with the Sword, which I've never seen. All right. Um, um, uh, she only uh, directed one movie for Shaw Brothers, and all the rest of her movies uh, she started. Uh, she did for her own company. Her 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 and her husband started their own company to make movies. One movie which I've never seen. I think it's called Lady Crime Boss or something like that. Stars her. Stars Cable Shoe. Oh wow! Really? You know, Cable Shoe used to be an actress. 
she's sort of the she's the Dorothy Arzner. She's she's the Dorothy Arzner of Hong Kong. She's the Ida Lupino of Hong Kong, and she's the Cache Rubin of Hong Kong. <laughs> all, all wrapped up into one. Um, but uh, uh, and she shows up. She's in a few of her other movies uh, in little cameos. Uh, but in uh, 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 but one movie she plays. It's a gangster movie, and she's the star. Of I think it's, it's, it's not called Lady Crime Boss, but it's something like that. One of the things that's fantastic about Bandits, Prostitutes, and Silver is it's the real proud that she's the director of it because it has a normal opening credit sequence, again, with the big gun down theme playing. And then all of a sudden, when it gets to the director credit, it just cuts to a picture of Tabo Shu on the set <laughs> directing. <laughs> In modern clothes, all right? Just directing the movie. That's amazing. Um, oh, one of the other things about Bandits, Prostitutes, and Silver is um, two special things in it. One, it has a great feminine touch to it where Lo Lee is the bad guy and he's the, the evil tyrant that's, that's squeezing the town dry with taxes and, and he's, you know, he's, he's, people are, are dying and starving and, and, and uh, he's sending his tax collectors out there to take their money. And uh, he runs a whole kangaroo court system uh, uh, with his marshals. And he's just a horrible tyrant in this town. And he runs it with an iron hand. And he's got these horrible marshals out there doing all this stuff. However, he's completely terrified of his wife. <laughs> <laughs> he's married to a woman. And, he's, and you see him like, acting like the total... Hong Kong Kung Fu tyrant and then the wife walks in the room and he's kissing her ass and he's bowing and scraping and his wife doesn't know he's as evil a tyrant as he is and she thinks she's a reformer and she goes so have you given the people the money that I asked you to give them and have you given them a break on their loans and like, oh, of course I have dear of course I have <laughs> Go out there and you know and and and, and, and uh, 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 spread the charity to the poor people of our our, our, our community and our village. <laughs> Meanwhile, some intestines tell them all if they don't pay them, they don't pay them. <laughs> um, but the, one of the other things that's fantastic in that movie, one, uh, Loli has this fantastic weapon in the film. He fights with this. It's like it's almost like the flying guillotine, except it's like it's like giant golden handcuffs that are on a long chain. It works the same concept as the, as the flying guillotine, except they're, they're golden handcuffs on a big chain. Um, but also, Angela Mao is in the film. Okay, well, Wong Tao is in the film, Angela Mao is in the film, and Lo Lee's in the film. And Lo Lee and Angela Mao have a fantastic bloody fight. I, and I, as far as I know, it's the only fight that they have. It's the only movie I know where they're in it together and they have a fight. And it's a great fight. Wow. And a um, bloody fight. Yeah, that sounds amazing. It um, does not end the way you think it will. Um, you speaking about that weapon made me think about uh, Flying Guillotine, um, how all the different Flying Guillotine movies have such different Flying Guillotine designs. <laughs> Yeah. Um, the original Shaw Brothers one is like that big clunky yeah. thing that doesn't really... As far as I'm concerned, there is only one Flying Guillotine. <laughs> well, yeah, I, the, you're right, you're right. Yeah, the there master of the Flying Guillotine has the little compact one that he can fold up and put in his pocket. I mean, that's the best. 
Yeah, you, no, it needs to have the compact where you can put it in your pocket, you open it up, it looks like a purple parasol. <laughs> right. But I'm also a fan of Fatal Flying Guillotine. I don't know if you like that movie, um, where the villain has two motorized flying guillotines that he uses. Now, you know, you know, you know what? I haven't seen that movie. I know of that movie, but I haven't seen it. But I've seen that. I've seen, I've yeah, seen it's that. It's not the best movie. I have a print of it, and the audience goes nuts because it really delivers on the flying guillotine. Like, there's more decapitations in that movie than any other flying guillotine movie. So it's worth checking well, out. Well, speaking of which, uh, in Bandits, Prostitutes, and Silver, there's the golden handcuff thing that the guy has, but there also is something like that. There is, like, this weird buzzsaw. Oh, no, I know what it is. It's like uh, uh, um, one of the characters, maybe it's, is it Angela Mao? I can't remember. One of the characters, they have like symbols. They, they have like, like little tiny symbols, a symbol ring on their fingers, but the symbols turn around like bus saws. <laughs> <laughs> and they're fucking badass. They're really, really cool. Uh, well, on a normal calendar, which we don't get to have right now, uh, we would do a pick of the month to wrap. But I wanted to ask uh, both of you, because you talked about what your entry point for Peter Bogdanovich would be. But I'm thinking people like us burgeoning cinephiles at home during this period, because a lot of these films, I think, translate best to seeing in on a screen with an audience, yeah. obviously. But there was one, I shotgun a bunch of these over the last few days, but one-armed boxer lit my brain on fire. And there's a big difference. Yeah. There's a big difference when you watch a movie and you're like, oh, this is good, good fight scene, good. And then you watch a film, you go, oh my God, Joe on the floor, what is this? I need to see more of it. And that's how I had that feeling with that one. So I was curious if you could both maybe pick a film to recommend somebody during this period to see at home as a, as a cinephile entry point to these movies. Oh gosh, well, uh, okay, cool, yeah. Uh, uh, well, uh, well, for sure, if you're talking about one arm, if you're talking about one arm boxer, AKA Chinese professionals, uh, Master with flying guillotine. Yeah, they're they're definitely they're definitely fun ones. Um, but I think we would probably if I think we would probably both agree that uh, uh, Beach of the War Gods, you know, would be would be one that is it's a it's it's fantastic. And like I said, it, it actually it manages to actually transcend the genre by the very end. In so far. As by the time you get to the end of it, like, I, I, you know, it's like, shit, this is as much like Braveheart as it is a Kung Fu movie. I mean, the, the, mass, the battle at the end is so massive. It is, it's, it's such a great, great battle sequence. But we've already said that one. So I would actually choose a more straightforward Kung Fu movie, but that completely delivers, is a lot of fun, and it's very exciting. Um, I would choose one of the I would I would choose one of the Angela Mao movies. All right, I would uh, I would say between uh, either uh, uh, Lady Kung Fu or um, yeah, I would say either between uh, Lady Kung Fu or uh, oh well, I, it's hard to choose. I, I, I would choose Lady Kung Fu for sure, and then I'd be fighting it out between either Deadly China Doll or uh, uh, when uh, Taekwondo when Taekwondo strikes. In speaking of Angela Mao, Quentin, have you ever been to her restaurant? No, I know it's in, it's in, it's in Los Angeles. I know. I, uh, uh, no, I never have. Have you? I have not. I think it's in New York, right, Dan? Oh, it's you- in New York. Yeah, it's in New York. I haven't been there. Um, I hear she doesn't really want to talk about her career, but I'd mm-hmm. still love to go. <laughs> yeah, I would still love to go, too. That was one of the things that was actually really sweet was um, uh, in one of the documentaries – 
that uh, the Eastern Heroes guys did. Uh, they interviewed uh, uh, Judy Lee, and she really liked the movies. And it was really cool. And it was actually really interesting. It was actually very touching when she was talking about the films. Because she said, um, she goes, uh, um, she goes, no, we make good films. They're, they're good films. They've got good stories. And you, you, get, you, get, you get emotionally involved in the stories. They're just good stories. And I like the way she, uh, they almost made me tear up when she said it that way. It made me, made me feel good. I really like that because... I just, I mean, the movies are so much fun and they're such crowd pleasers, but I just always want people to take them seriously too. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there is a difference between, you know, a Venom's movie is a crowd pleaser. Like, I, I don't know, you know, maybe there's a camp factor there that I still yeah. love it, but some people can't get past or whatever. But so <clears> as far as recommendation, I would reiterate Beach of the War Gods again, because I think that movie it could be held up alongside like seven samurai. It's a phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. Wow. Um, and like not even necessarily like, oh, we're going to watch a Kung Fu movie. Like you're just going to watch a great movie and watch mm -hmm. that movie at home. Um, but as far as other Kung Fu movies, yeah, Master of the Flying Guillotine is hard to beat. 36 Chamber of Shaolin again. And then Eight Diagram Pole Fighter is always the one I recommend to people. Um, and you know, if we're, if we're throwing out that another one to... Uh, 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 for the audience out there looking for a, a cool school fair and, and to throw in this subgenre that we haven't mentioned up until now, uh, the ninja movie, uh, a five element ninja, all right, <laughs> is one of the best, uh, uh, the greatest of the, of the late, late era Shang Shay movies, right along there with a, a kid with a golden arm. Uh, but uh, eight element, uh, five element ninja, also known as super ninja, is. Fantastic! One of the great end, one of the great closing ends of, of all time. <laughs> it's amazing. I, I mean, there's what it's. You can't even talk about the closing end without seeing it in your mind. <laughs> what you know what I, mean? I really love about that movie, what always the audience always goes bananas, is they're all wearing those mesh shirts during the yeah. movie. So people are like laughing at that. But then towards the end of the movie, the mesh shirts play into it when they tie them into a giant net. And they net up the oh, yeah. water ninjas. Well, that's one of the things about the film is you know it's like it's it's funny and silly in the first half, but by the time it gets to the second half, it's kind of told you how to how to take this story, and you kind of got it. You actually by the second half of the movie, you you you've committed to its logic, and now you know what's going to happen because it's one of those movies where it's like you know. Uh, the characters keep going through the same. You keep going through the, the, the same same trials of, of fire. In this case, literally, um, and uh, so, so you kind of know what's going going on. And, and by the time you, they go through it, the whole last time, you're really into it. And now the audience isn't laughing. Is laugh is not laughing at it anymore. They're laughing with it, which actually is one of the things that's nice about the film is because it wins the audience over. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Is that your favorite Venom's movie? It's more or less a Venom's movie. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it, it's it's my favorite Venom's movie. I mean, you know, uh, uh, yeah, Deadly Venom is is iconic for everybody being established. Yeah, I remember when I uh, uh, when I was uh, when I watched uh, uh, Soul Brothers of Kung Fu with uh, uh, RZA, and he was like, "Oh shit, it's the toe." <laughs> <laughs> 
this is the man. Oh shit, it's the total. Yeah. <laughs> but I would actually pick, even though it's not officially a Venom's movie, because it really only has the toad, it only has Lomang in it, but not 100%. They're, they're also in it in, in various parts. But I also love uh, Kid with a Golden Arm. Yeah. Yeah, that one's tough to beat. I have the unpopular opinion of I'm not a huge fan of Five Deadly Venoms. I think it's a cool movie, but I think all the other ones, or most of the other ones after it, were a lot better than Five Deadly Venoms. Kid with the Golden Arm, Crippled Avengers, Invincible Shaolin, Ninja. Yeah, I, well, I take it, that's the way I kind of qualified it, is, you know, it, it has its classic status for setting them, for setting them up, but it's not as emotionally, uh, um, it, it, it's not as emotionally gratifying as the other ones. Okay. And if we were going to actually get out of Hong Kong and throw a martial art movie uh, to recommend, absolutely, positively, Ninja 3, The Domination. He is the most feared and powerful warrior. A ninja who breaks from ancient tradition and explodes onto America. His soul possesses the body of an innocent woman and transforms her into a lethal assassin. Who are you? Her only hope is Yamada, the master ninja, who has been sent to destroy him. Where Revenge of the Ninja left off, Ninja 3 begins. An epic struggle of superhuman strength and supernatural forces. Ninja 3, The Domination. One of my favorite canon movies, one of my favorite movies of the 80s, just period. <laughs> I'm a huge, huge fan of uh, uh, Ninja 3, The Domination. And found out, surprisingly, that uh, there's a very famous fan of Ninja 3, The Domination. When we were doing Hateful Eight, Channing Tatum and I bonded over Ninja 3 of the Domination. He loves Ninja 3 of the Domination. That's, That's great. Yeah, it's weird in this surreal time we're living in right now, this pandemic. Um, it is weird that every time I go to the grocery store and everybody's looking kind of like a ninja now, or yeah. Chinese, or Chinese boxer, everybody's wearing... No, no that's, not, that's the thing I thought you were gonna mention because uh, uh, Every time I see people with their with their little mask on, they look like Wang Yu when he goes to the casino to fight in Chinese boxer. They're wearing like the exact kind of the, yeah. the exact same mask. He wears the mask and like these white oven mitts. And I said it at the grocery store the other day. I told my wife, I was like, everybody looks like Chinese boxer. She's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Well, we we look forward to seeing what both of you guys uh, play and program once we can put things back on the big screen. You know, w once it's safe to do so. But uh, yeah, this has been for for us. This has been a great to just overhear a conversation like this that's so in depth, and I've got a l running list of titles now that I guess everyone so probably many good is. Titles. Yeah. Um, but you know, we want to thank you guys for doing this here, and uh, you know, thank the listeners for continuing to support the theaters and the spaces that you love during this period. Larry Edmonds Bookshop. There's a lot of places under a lot of strain out there during yeah. these periods. And if you can do something versus just going to Barnes and Noble, do it, you know, because it can make a huge difference to what, what we come out the other end. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you guys. This was, uh, this was a lot of fun. And it was, uh, again, it was so much fun to talk to you about this. It was really, really great.
We love having you on, Quentin. Thank you. And thank you, Dan. Yeah, thanks for having me so much, guys. I really appreciate it. I love, I'm so down with what the new Beverly is. And, you know, usually your calendar is my movie recommendations. That's I'm usually watching the stuff you guys are showing. So even though you're temporarily closed, I do love that you're still posting your reviews because it gives me stuff to watch. I love it. Yep. Oh, thanks a bunch. And by the way, you know, uh, 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 your theater in Portland is just is, is fantastic. I, uh, I'm looking I'm looking forward when all this goes over and everything so I can come down there not just with one of my movies but maybe bring a maybe bring a print or something and, and, and have a night there but one of my favorite screenings of uh, the hateful eight was uh, uh, coming to your town and, and and showing the 70 millimeter print of the hateful eight there that was that was uh, that was that was a that was one of my favorite nights of, of the entire theatrical uh, uh, exhibition of the film that's great. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I told the crowd before, you know, stick around. There's a surprise after. And I was like, they're thinking they're getting fucking T-shirts or something. They have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the name of the place that we went to that's across the street? Blackwell's. They closed. That place closed down. The diviest oh. dive bar on the West Coast. They closed, though. Oh, what a drag, man. That was so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everyone, so much. And thanks again, Quentin. Okay, you got it, man. Thanks a lot, guys. Cool. We'll talk soon. Cheers. Okay.